Hello and welcome back to Podcasting as Praxis. I'm David, my pronouns are he and him. I'm James, my pronouns are they and them. I'm Jamie, my pronouns are he and him. And I'm Alistair, my pronouns are also he and him. Rob is, Rob is away this week. Uh, lucky him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's in Britain, so maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they, okay, and they yeah, won't let enough. him leave. <laughs> <laughs> he's stuck. This is this is actually true, listener. He was last I heard stuck at the world's largest automated baggage carousel. So uh yeah, great. Which awesome. is glitched and stopped working. Yeah. Wait, what behind the lot was it the carousel that was automated? Is that the whole point? Because I thought all of them were automated unless there's just a series of guys underneath that conveyor belt. No, it was a it was a bag, automated baggage drop off. Yeah. Yeah, it's it which includes glitched. the back end to it. It's oh, automated. Okay. It's automated when you get your bag back, but you normally have to give it to some fucking goon by yeah. hand, don't you? So, yeah. So like, there's a lot of people think the carousel is just a bit of a bomb. It's not. There's actually this whole back end system to it as well that you don't see behind the flaps. Yeah, we've and... all seen Toy Story. <laughs> <laughs> is that in Toy Story? It's been years since I've seen that film. Um, My reference yeah, point no. was Die Hard too, to be fair. Yeah, yeah maybe Toy Story too, actually, but I, I don't care. What is it about second films and baggage carousels? I think it's just mm. the two films, actually. No, there was that bit in uh, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> that, that, no, that's bit of, there's a there's a carousel in Return of the Jedi. So I'm Goog- I'm googling Wikipedia luggage carousel and seeing what comes up. Baggage <laughs> Robo on the Wikipedia. Okay, let's learn more about this. <laughs> oh. I hope Wikipedia features every week. The baggage robo was a droid often found in spaceports. These automatons could be hired to carry one's luggage from terminal to terminal. Well, now we all know. Yeah. I, uh, I I have this little game that I played recently after becoming more aware of Wikipedia, which is, uh, you know, Wikipedia groaning, where you look up an article on a legitimately famous person in real life and then look up the article on, say, Han Solo on Wikipedia and compare the length. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit like... Hmm. I don't understand who has the time and energy and will to produce something like that about all of the fake bullshit. Do I need to show you the and all notes document again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you didn't but, have like thousands of collaborators. So. It's true. Have you well, have you I noticed have by the way? Have you noticed by the way, Alistair, that Wikipedia is actually divided in two? There's like the official canon, and then there's the extended universe that got destroyed, and they've separated it into two pages for every single. Yeah, separate entry. but equal. so since rob is away tonight it falls on someone else to do a bit of a deep dive and this episode we're going to be talking (laughs) everyone just immediately screamed not it but james did it slow (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't remember being asked actually no everyone just started touching their noses jamie and you just did it on reflex Yeah, I was slowest to do it, and it was a honking sound as a consequence. <laughs> James, James, why is everyone touching their noses? <laughs> so yeah, we are gonna we're gonna cover the SAG after and WGA strikes. Um, but before we get to that, I've got some news nuggets for you all. So, um, I regret to inform you. You know, we we talked a little bit about this wave of shoplifting that was in the US and how it was coming over to the UK, and we were saying it's cool and good actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, crime is down, cla- but fear of crime is rising. Gotcha. Basically, yes, as it turns out, uh, clarification, and this is thanks to Raphael uh, Shimonov, um, who, you know, hosts a podcast elsewhere. 
Uh, he was writing about this on Twitter at length um, uh, by way of the Los Angeles Times. Basically, the whole shoplifting crisis was completely manufactured by police and repeated with zero fact-checking by press. Well, I mean, so, uh, like, whoa. yeah, I mean, um, that is something that we've imported here. Just look at the Notting Hill Carnival shit that's uh, gone down as a result of the last weekend. And again, what happened at exactly the same time last year. Yeah. Mm. I think the, um, the, the fucking pirate raid on, like, Debenhams or whatever the fuck it was that went. That, that actually happened, though, didn't it? Yeah, no, this is the thing. There have been a couple of raids, but it's only been, like, a couple so, you know, Raphael took the time to go through the shocking numbers they cited, um, which are all lies, to be clear, and we'll get to that. Um, he worked out that it translated to $0.07 cents per $100 in losses. That's what we're talking about. That's the great wave. $0.07 yeah. cents per $100. But those are my $0.07, cents, motherfucker. <laughs> Give them back. Yeah. Um, Where else are they meant to uh, find those profits? I know. Well, so courtesy of the Los Angeles Times... Um, that would mean retail gangs steal nearly 25% of total sales in San Francisco and Auckland combined, which amounted to around $15.5 billion in 2019, according to the state agency that tracks sales tax. <laughs> wow, that sure is a terrifying number. I wonder can if it's real. Be, yeah, can that be right? In a word, no. <laughs> uh, the country's largest retail industry group, uh, the National Retail Federation, estimated in its latest report that losses from organized retail theft average 700,000 per 1 billion in sales or about 0.07% of total sales um which is about they should, have, they should have called that the National Retail Association and then gone to bat for everyone who wants to conceal carry a price and gun <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah now, so this is an the... open carry state Jamie <laughs> But yeah, um, that's that's about 330 times lower than the estimate that was given out. Um, and so, you know, there was even a bit where they confronted the group, um, again, from the Los Angeles time. Asked how the organization arrived at that figure, a CRA staffer said that there's no way of knowing exactly how much organized retail crime affects the bottom line of businesses. The staffer said the estimate was based on a back-of-the-napkin calculation. Oh, so it's exactly like uh, estimating the billions of lost revenue as a result of piracy, then. Yeah. Yep. Um, if organized retail thieves steal t- seventy billion annually, and California accounts for ten percent of U.S. California's losses add up to seven billion, meaning the Bay Area is likely in the billions itself. That's the logic they're using to put this yeah. together. <laughs> I mean, um, to be fair, because- it is very difficult because these people are going in and just stealing intellectual property, which, as we know, <laughs> cannot be taken inventory of. So it's mm, impossible yeah. to say. You wouldn't download uh, Nike or whatever. Um, what, what's great about it is they also have been been on the record and lied to Congress about this. Um, yeah, everyone so when that, though. I think it's legal. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, well, don't, don't, don't say that as if there's consequences behind it. Yeah, I think you stand so, out more if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> so again, from the Los Angeles Times, um, you know, lying to Congress, which should, in theory, have consequences under oath. Um, when asked where that number came from, Rich Rossman, vice president of CLEAR and sergeant with the Broward County Sheriff's Office, said that it was pulled from the National Retail Federation's report. But the NRF puts all losses to theft and fraud from all sources at around $45 billion, not losses to organised retail crime. So all losses are $45 billion. Organised retail crime is, uh, you know, substantially smaller than that. And yeah. yet they just took the major figure, you know, and said, oh, that's all organised crime. Horseshit. What do they Just expect? Like, 
organising shit's fucking hard. Like, yeah. you're well, not, not going to do organised crime of retail theft at any large scale because it's just fucking effort. Yeah, it sound, sounds like all these criminals need to read more theory. Mm. Yeah. Well, that might explain why it's actually shrinking. Get it? Like, the actual organised crime um, and retail thefts are shrinking. And a majority of popula- uh, you know, portion of it doesn't actually ca- uh, come from actual crime. It's just that stats are misreported. So get this. Um, although the NRF publishes its organised retail crime estimates every year, the group stopped publishing a detailed breakdown of the sources of shrink in 2019. Interesting. But in 2018, a survey found that 35.7% of shrink came from shoplifting or organised retail crime, and 33.2% came from employee theft. Both percentages had declined since 2015, and a different sort of risk, paperwork error, hit 18.8% of total shrink in 2018. So they're uh-huh. actually losing more than half of what they're losing to, like, you know, say employee theft. is just coming from paperwork error. Paperwork so, error uh, means the management are now at the theft. Quite yeah. possibly, actually. Not even a joke. So, uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's all horseshit and it's all been gymmed up to, again, arm the police. And we're not denying that there are, like, occasional organised raids taking place, but it is not the fucking sweeping epidemic that's being made out to be, not by a long no. shot. So pull your fucking yeah. fingers out. Yeah, yeah, I would encourage know. them to go further. <laughs> but uh, I thought it'd be interesting to compare and contrast this with actual routine business fraud in the USA. And I've got a hell of a story here. Um, this is from the Washington Post. Um, and it's about a company called, and I'm really not making this up, Booz Allen Hamilton. Um, and how they Booz essentially... Booz Allen def- Hamilton, and why is he being booed? Yeah. Is that booze or booze? It's booze. B double O Z. Sold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well now I feel foolish. <laughs> so um so this is a story about a whistleblower um who may not be entirely altruistic, and we'll get to that in a, in a later point. Um only a few months into a new finance job, Sarah Feinberg felt stunned when a senior manager with a Northern Virginia-based defense contractor called federal auditors too stupid to notice overcharging, according to a federal complaint she filed. Feinberg said she had warned the manager that the company, Booz Allen Hamilton, was losing tens of millions of dollars and, in her view, billing more than it should on US government contracts to cover the losses. During the ensuing nine months, she repeatedly raised concerns with senior executives, including internal compliance officials and the chief financial officer, according to a 37-page civil complaint she filed against Booz Allen in 2016 under the Federal False Claims Acts. Um, in I July... Like this, this, the almost, like, subtext of this of, like, both the US government and her bosses are just like, we know, stop going on about it. <laughs> well, get, get to this, right? In July, the Justice Department, which investigated her complaint, announced that Booz Allen had agreed to pay $377 million, um, $209 million in restitution to the federal government and the rest in penalties to settle the matter, one of the largest awards in a government procurement case in history. Um, Feinberg, who said she felt vindicated and was to receive nearly $70 million for making the case known to authorities, nevertheless could not help feel doubts about whether justice was served. Um, so like, there's this whole thing in the US where you can file a, I believe this is pronounced qui uh, tam lawsuit, in which law, uh, whistleblowers are awarded a portion of any financial judgment or settlement as incentive to come forward with evidence of fraud against the US government. So basically, like if you're at a company 
and a company's ripping them off by say 200 odd you know million dollars if you report it to the US government and evidence it and they get a judgment against them you can walk away with a fat paycheck which is nice. kind of cool but you know at the same time one wonders would this have been reported if not for that you know little kind of statute well, I mean, that's truly why the incentives there I suppose. Um, the system dates back to the Civil War, ironically, when authorities sought to root out corruption in the production of war materials. The number of whistleblowers has grown significantly since uh, Congress strengthened the <laughs> no, law in Nothing new under the old sun. Yeah. But would you believe, so, you know, I'm you know, I'm saying that this is routine, but this is just one case, surely. Here's the thing, as the article goes on to say, according to federal data, 652 people have filed these complaints just last year. And the Justice Department has recovered $2.2 billion in false claims by companies from about 351 of those cases. Um, and this is the second highest number of cases ever. It's just increasing year on year. And Very anti-business, all of them. I know, right? Um, what's interesting, though, is this has led, and I just love this paragraph, because remember, this is the Washington Post, right? Legal analysts have questioned whether the system has been effective in delivering a strong enough message of deterrence to companies that operate within the federal government's vast contracting network. In civil cases, they say companies are rarely required to admit liability, senior executives often do not face personal accountability, and investors typically react with a shrug, sometimes pushing stock prices higher because the legal cloud is lifted. Um, but yeah, that's it. There's no consequences to any of this. They just, if you get caught, then you have to pay restitution and a fine. That's it. Rip. Compared to if you are done for shoplifting in the United States, say, as part of like a raid group, in which case you'll do actual prison time for far less money, as we've just gone over. The Washington uh, Post is the, the Jeff Bezos paper, isn't it? It is, and you're yep. correct that Jeff Bezos is also involved in, you know, um, the support of US military um, through his massive, like, tentacle-equipped, uh, uh, you know, system that is Amazon web hosting, etc. Yeah. Um, so... You know, just it's just interesting to have a little bit of editorial, like, is this even effective? Um, but yeah, so there you go. Uh, you know, for all that that shit's made up when it comes to, like, raiding shops, the actual routine corruption by big business is very, very alive and well, and no one cares. No one fucking cares. Yeah. Uh, the only time anyone cares is when there's a paycheck to be made everyone, out of it. Everyone just it. looks down and says, bottom text. <laughs> um. But let me let me reassure you that this routine corruption is not confined to the United States because, uh, you know, taking us back here to the UK, uh, would it surprise you to know that there is also a significant amount of corruption over here of a slightly different form? Are you for Pikachu. real? <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to read you this short article from The Telegraph. Bidding war for Labour insiders as city prepares for red shift. With Starmer expected to sweep to power, businesses are jostling for a party's top talent. Sorry, sorry, I couldn't let you finish that sentence before I started Get laughing. The fuck out of here! Did you say that again? The title is "Bidding War for Labour Insiders as City Prepares for Red Shift." With Starmer expected to sweep to power, businesses are jostling for the party's top talent. Fucking red shift because he's receding away so quickly. <laughs> but yeah so the article's about how basically naked corruption is taking place and everyone's just like oh this is normal this yeah, is fine it's, yeah, the, it is it's a good kind of corruption so yeah, yeah that's exactly fine. britain that's, it's entirely normal after 13 years of tory government business leaders are facing up to the fact that a new party may be in downing street next year one that many have no experience of working with with Ed labor Davey. enjoying <laughs> <laughs> 
With Labour enjoying a 17-point lead over the Tories, Sir Keir Starmer looks increasingly likely to sweep to power. That uh-huh. prospect is sparking a scramble to figure out how to deal with the government in waiting. Uh-huh. Public affairs and comms consultancies are getting CEOs asking them, what are we doing in preparation for this potential change? Do we have the right contacts and connections? Says Lucy Cairncross, managing director of VMA Group, a recruiter that specialises in public affairs. Um... <laughs> And yeah, so they're basically PR firms and city advisors are rushing to hire current or former Labour insiders who know how the party works and can help get things are done. They, is this actually happening or are the Labour insiders rushing to them? With that, like, no, it's, it's, it, with it's genuinely... Book? No, it's, it's genuinely this way around. Um, this, is, this is... So the subtext to this article is that access um, to government of one form or another is like the lifeblood that major companies in the UK run on, essentially. Uh-huh. And they're now having to go, oh, shit, we actually have to care about access to labour again. Like, you know, it's not just enough to turn up to one of their fundraising dinners to, like, keep up poker in the fire. Now we actually need a man or a woman, probably a man, given how sexist it all is, who can get us access to, like, if we want a sit-down with Rachel Reeves or whatever, then we need someone who can make that happen for us. This is real. This genuinely happens with government um, shifts across the world. It's just how business does this shit. Um Right, but are they all this dumb to think that a Labour government will happen? Is this fucking Londo Malari Inc. saying, do you know what, you should deal with the shadow government? <laughs> it's like they are genuinely this dumb, yes, is the short version. Because you got to remember, David, like most um, most people in business don't actually spend their day paying that close attention to, like, you know, electoral prospects. No, obviously, uh, people who so work in can... business are dickheads who post in LinkedIn all day. I've seen yeah, that exactly. they post, like... <laughs> So, they can be so, forgiven yeah. for not knowing that, like, nothing is going to change. Well, so the interesting thing is, like, I, I, I'm with you guys. I don't think, like, Labour's going to get elected um, for reasons we've gone over. But um, even if it does, even if they do get in, nothing will change for us. But it might change depending on who's got access on the inside. How dare, so, you, how dare you impeach the fine abilities of Keir Starmer? Things would get worse. <laughs> yeah, all right, fair. Misspoke there. Um, but for real, like, so if you are, let's say you are a pencil supplier to the civil service, right? Um, and it's the decision for... Hold on, let me, let me one... get into character. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, James is going to need an hour, sorry. Bring me yeah. back in a... Me back at <laughs> like, nine o'clock. How is that, like, you know, the, the particulars of how that contract is awarded, like, there'll be all sorts of rules on independence, etc. But at the end of the day, there is a fair bit of pressure can be exerted by government to decide who gets the pencils contract or whatever. And if the government changes and you've no longer got your contacts, one of your one of your competitors might well get that grift. Well, and this is, why, what, this is what that's it's all why about. why you make sure all the contracts are signed for, like, 40 years and they have to give you mm. fucking whales if they go back on it or something. I mean, they do kind of do that a bit, but there's always new well, stuff. They give comes whales up. to a pencil contractor. Why not? Well, I mean, the metaphorical weight of a whale in you know British sterling, maybe. But there's also like, I mean, you know, there's also oh, just new that, shit comes we? up. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's new shit comes up all the time. Like, I mean, the whole you know COVID crisis. We all saw very nakedly what happens when a government gets free reign to basically award its contracts for that. And everyone wants to be on the inside on the take when that happens, and so yeah. and so now they're scrambling because they want to be on the inside when Labour. Yeah, what the what these is in um, what these businesses are about to learn is that they need to have some extraordinarily odious right wing views, otherwise Luke Haykhurst is going to like just ban them from the entirety of Britain. I yeah. have a theory that if Labour gets into power, they might actually just ditch Haykhurst because he'll have outlived his usefulness. But that's yeah, a whole think... other story. I, f- I feel like that little prick is way more instrumental to the 
machinations of the party than fucking Keir Starmer is, so, like, fat chance of that. Yeah, but we can all um, we'll hope see. he, like, walks under a bus or something. So, it, you know, reading from the article, every business and every trade body in the country is making a contingency plan at the moment for a Labour government. Um, it is an increasingly expensive procedure. There is a shortage of talent, meaning companies must pay a premium to attract those with real insight. Are they um, talking about Labour? Because, correct, there is a shortage of talent. That is, that is absolutely <laughs> well, fucking true. Well, they're, they're not even meaning competence, but just meaning people who know, who, right, who's the person I need to ring up in order to get this to happen. So, Wes yeah. Streeton knows his way about a fucking photocopier. <laughs> well, I want to read you I imagine, I imagine, though, the answer to who do I ring about this is Keir Starmer. Like, he has the energy of someone who will absolutely answer the phone at any fucking hour. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to head out to the Arsenal game. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the editor to speed that section up. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to read you these paragraphs because you'll enjoy this. Labour has been out of power for more than a decade, and many of those who worked under the party's last leader have been written off. There aren't that many credible people from the Corbyn period because so many of them were avowedly anti-business. And of course, it's a long time since Labour were in government. So there aren't that many Labour advisors who have government experience, says Nate King, managing director of Hendham Strategy. <laughs> yeah, once again, Jeremy Corbyn's biggest crime is derailing the like horrendous... Fucking career paths are the most annoying fucking people in government. Oh, I I was a fuck. I was in fucking Labour students in 1992, and uh, so I should be an MP between 2015 and 2017, so that I can get a nice plush position uh, in the fucking water industry. So that uh, yeah, so that I can facilitate uh, private money moving around near and about oh, the Labour Alistair, Party. Alistair, 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 I, I love you because you've set this up beautifully. Um, former MPs are in particular demand. Luciana Berger, who quit Labour in protest uh. in 2019 before later rejoining briefly, joined in-house communications last year and became a senior advisor this summer. Anna Turley, who served in Corbyn's shadow cabinet, has joined Arden Strategies, as has the party's Cobley. former head of business relations, <laughs> Ellie Miller. Got him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they just straight up said right then and there that fucking Corbyn wasn't corrupt. Like, the people under him, for the most part, weren't really corrupt, and so we can't go to them. See, access. I would have thought that the biggest problem here with Corbyn and these, like, consultancy jobs was that he sped up the pace of employment too quickly. Like, I don't see any of them going for the gambling industry at this point, and presumably it's because they've had to turn around and say, fuck off, we're full. We've had 15 <laughs> years worth of MPs join us in five. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, um... A current Labour source says, I get some kind of call probably once a month. It started last year when the Tories began to properly implode. Um, and yeah, so it, it's really yeah, like but it's right just, now... It's just Ian Austin doing that one phone call. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's really like they're predicting that if it becomes a dead certain thing, then it's going to be like hellful ever and just they're going to be showering Labour insiders. Now, now is the hour of chucker. <laughs> yes. Unironically. Like, that's, that's what this shit is. Um, demand for labour expertise... The British Obama finally gets to play Kingmaker. <laughs> mm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't stretch it that far. But... Uh, Chuckle um, would, though, so... Yeah, he would. <laughs> um, demand for labour expertise is strongest in finance, tech, and net-zero adjacent industries. Um, 
any industry that's under particular pressure from a net zero agenda, they are absolutely trying to talk themselves into a position where they can get their you know, hooks into an ex-government, essentially. Um, like, it's just straight up, like, they know that net zero is going to hurt their, their pockets, so they yeah, want to get the in. Reason, the reason they need the, uh, the insiders from, uh, like, from the pre-Corbyn and post-Corbyn years is so that they can just have their, uh, like, their, their wallets stroked in the safe knowledge that nothing will change for them. Yeah. Like, BP, BP and Shell are still going to be drilling thousands of barrels a second out of the fucking earth and mm. they're going to be doing their fucking PR for green energy just because that's what they have to do in order to continue drilling the thousands of barrels a second or whatever, and nothing of material ma- like significance will change. So, mission accomplished, everyone. They really well, want to have their wallets inspected, but they want to hand them over to the only people who would seriously actually do wallet inspection totally straight. I think they want to basically handle their wallets and get them back with more cash in them, which is a very labour thing to do. But they're straight up and nakedly honest at the end of this article to finish it off. Um, then you get very large employers who are asking, what is labour going to do on employment rights and taxation for large companies? Labour are happy to answer these questions. When Starmer launched Fear not, his pawn- it starts. <laughs> when Starmer <laughs> launched his prawn cocktail offensive 2.0 last summer... <laughs> It marked the second phase of a long push to... Full fucking box of Walker's crisps. It marked the second phase of a long push to try and woo business to the left. Capital L on left, by the way. It, it the wouldn't first be Walker's, phase... it, would be, it would be skips because they immediately melt. Mm. <laughs> that was really good, I enjoy that. Um, the first phase was basically decontamination, trying to convince people that the party is no longer Jeremy Corbyn, says Ward. The second phase is carpet bombing, meeting every business or anyone who will meet you. That is what they are doing now and what they have been doing for the last year or so. The third phase. I fucking shot at some carpet bombing. The third phase (laughs) will be a calculated, targeted program of engagement with a much smaller group of businesses that Labour can trust, he says. As the circle gets smaller and the election draws nearer, the value of insiders will only go up. That's it. That's that's, that's how government works, everyone. We should all buy shares in Wes fucking Street. Everyone, go down, go down to your local McDonald's, buy a Happy Meal, and keep the toy under your bed. In five years, that toy will be worth tens of pounds. Like this, this is the thing. If you could put stock in politicians, but it wouldn't I actually would be a bad Rishi shout. Sunak. Yeah, like basically for multiple reasons. Um, like th- th- this is how it works. It's all about who do you have access with, and it's all just bought and paid for. And remember, the companies aren't doing this just because they like a chat. They're doing this because they want to directly influence policy um, in a direction that will benefit them and fuck everyone else. Which might be, you know, you might be thinking, well, okay, the government's changing. I suppose this makes sense. But would it surprise you to know, for our final news nugget, that it doesn't just happen around election times? That it's in fact an ongoing process that goes across both parties. Um, well, I've got an article from The Guardian. Oh no, it's not Polly, is it? Is that supposed no, to fucking not, fill me with Rafa. confidence? It's not no, Rafa no, no. either, is it? This is actually, this is Rowena Mason, the Whitehall editor, right? And this isn't, uh, you know, uh, the, these opinions are terrible. This is like some actual factual reporting. More than 100 MPs received freebies worth 180,000 this summer. Um... Exclusive, Oliver, Oliver Dowden and Keir Starmer are among those who enjoyed free tickets to events including the Chelsea Flower Show and the Derby. Um, 
But yeah, more than 100 MPs have enjoyed free hospitality to concerts and sporting events more than worth more than 180,000 this summer, with tickets given away by banks, oil companies, the gambling industry, there you go, David, and media mm -hmm. firms. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, the Deputy Prime Minister, Oliver Dowden, and the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, are among those who have benefited from a growing trend for politicians accepting giveaways. A growing Critic trend, is it? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> are, we, are we noticing things again? We're noticing things again. Critics said the free tickets could leave MPs open to influence from the companies providing benefits and questioned whether it was appropriate in a cost of living crisis to be taking thousands of pounds in hospitality. Homer Simpson not with available the toy to oven in the members. car. Like, that's what I bought it for. <laughs> <laughs> Several ministers have been hosted for nothing by companies. Hunt was taken to the Chelsea Flower Show by Lloyd's Banking Group in a benefit worth more than £600, as well as accepting theatre and opera tickets. Paul Scully, a science and technology minister, accepted £1,100 worth of tickets to Billy Joel concert from a betting and gaming council. And Wimbledon Hospital... <laughs> I mean, this, is the this is the most fucking outrageous thing about all of this, right? In America, you get like... Yes. An entire fucking industry built in your state or whatever. Here, it's a fucking £600 ticket... Yeah, at least at least in the US they build a they build a baby killing factory that supplies some jobs. Like here, some cunt gets to go to a fucking. At gig. least in pork barreling, you get a pork barrel out of it. Yeah, like you're, you're actually you're sort of Alistair. You're, you're close. There's two separate things going on in the states. Pork barreling is when they're trying to get legislation through Congress. And so they give everyone a bit of everything and pile the pork into the barrel in order to get it through. What you're thinking of is in the US they do donations to political action committees. So a company will come along and they'll say, I tell you what, I will donate half a million to your political action committee's re-election fund. Now you can't spend that. That's not money that goes straight into your pocket. But what happens is your family and friends, etc., are beneficiaries of salaries from another political action committee in your network. And so you get the money in a roundabout way. It's like everyone scratches each other's backs and that's how they get away around the brown bag. Which one of these systems does it fall under when you get to listen to Piano Man immorally? Well, this is the thing. It's like the British one is just so low rent. Alistair is correct. Like, I, you know, we they, used they to be are a rude. real country, you know? Well, this is like, actually, to be depressing for a second, part of the reason it's so much cheaper is because Britain matters so much less, you know? Uh, it really is that simple. Um, I, but the article does go on to say, though, that the total of 180,000 hospitality since late May could be an underestimate, for example. Oh, yeah, because like, uh, I assume this is just from stuff that's in the uh, the registered interest, right? Because like, the amount of shit that just doesn't go in there because they can fucking get away with it. Because, like, oh, yeah. I remember um, uh, fucking Hislop and uh, one of the other guys from there were doing a thing in... Oh, this is, like, last year or whatever. And they were just saying how fucking difficult... It is to actually go through uh, the registered interests of all the MPs because it's like just impenetrable. Like and that, this is the stuff that's actually in there, right? This year, a Tory MP, Scott Benton, amazing name for a Tory, was filmed by undercover journalists talking of how MPs can get around the hospitality rules by accepting tickets worth just under the three hundred pound limit for declarations. You'd be amazed at the number of times I've been to races and a ticket comes to £295, he said, according to a report published by the Times. So yeah, like, you know, if you if you go to like nine different events that all are like £290 or whatever, that doesn't get declared. That if is... you go to what? 
That is so fucking witless as well. Oh, you'd be amazed how many times we've tickets cost oh, 295 quid, lads. That reminds me of a fucking ex-squaddy I worked with once who told every like for every new fucking person at the company that, oh, when you're talking to the customers, you can get away with, instead of saying thank you very much, if you say it quickly, you can say wank me hairy crutch and they don't notice. And it's like, wow. That's the exact same vibe, do you know what I mean? Like, guy thinks he's fucking stumbled upon like the fucking Rosetta Stone or some shit. <laughs> Oh, that is, yeah, perfect fucking yeah, it's not wrong. energy, it's holy shit. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the same vibe. <laughs> so um, there's, later on in the article, um, Rose Whiffen from Transparency International UK said, um, when parliamentarians are offered gifts and hospitality from private companies, they should ask themselves what the motivation behind this is. Private companies may use sporting and other events as opportunities to ingratiate themselves with parliamentarians and bend parliamentarians' ears. Unfortunately, Interactions at social occasions between ministers and outside interests rarely see the light of day owing to limited rules around lobbying. In order to ensure that lobbying no longer happens behind closed doors, the government must update the rules to address the informal lobbying loophole. Which is yeah, what this all comes down to. It's uh, it's it's by design. It's like this. I mean, there's yeah, only, but the, the, the lobbying bit is, is on its own. It doesn't make any sense. You can't stop lobbying without stopping second jobs fully. Like You've got mm-hmm. to put so many restrictions on what MPs can and can't do to make any of this make fucking sense as a system, and they never will because they love money. Yeah, the, the first thing you would need to do the, is stop them from owning fucking second houses, and they would just that would that the, the system would fucking collapse. The turkeys are never going to fucking vote for Christmas on this one. Mm. I mean, they're, they're not, and David is correct. Like so many of the problems in the UK can be traced back to property portfolios being owned by MPs for a start, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But yeah, this is, you know, this is just to show you, like, for all that they bang on about, oh, look at all this crime taking place, and then it turns out it's not real. Meanwhile, it's fucking endemic in, like, the corporate sector, starting with the government in the US, but even over here, our governments, uh, they're just completely and utterly in hoc to whoever is prepared to give them. Well, let's have a look at the list. Um, Like, Laura Trott, Pensions and Financial Inclusion Minister, got free tickets and hospitality at Glastonbury worth more than £3,000 from Google. And it's like, Come the fuck on. Like, you know, why Why would you ever need to accept that? That is a bribe. That is just straight up a bribe. If Google, a company that is as international as Google, turns around and says, hey, we really like you. Would you like to go to Glastonbury on our dime? That is a bribe. And whether it is legally qualified as one or not does not matter morally imagine, and functionally. Imagine is. being offered that kind of fucking bribe from Google of all fucking companies and not going <laughs> more. Could you not do more? They can afford well, it. I think part of it, like, so here's the here's the other thing. This is where I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on a second. So this is not in the article. This is just like, you know, taking a shot in the dark here. Because it very much is in the dark. They hide it. Um, these are the things that they're comfortable declaring. You have to bear that in mind. These are the things that they're comfortable going on. Oh, it's just hospitality. It's fine. Are you willing to bet that there's not members of our parliament who are getting other things which don't get declared and that are done in other ways. And oh, like, yeah, yeah. Some of this probably they're getting some... other things, but I would imagine that those other things are all still relatively fucking small fry. Yeah. Not like, necessarily. Google should I be, it... if, I, if I had power, Google should be offering me at least a millions of pounds. I mean, this is what they've kind of fucking did with like Tony Blair. Like, remember Tony Blair after he finished office and Gordon Brown and a whole bunch of others, they get invited on the speaking tours. No one actually cares what these fuckers have to say. They're being paid for services after the fact. That's what the speaking tours are. 
you know? It's just an excuse. Because it's not one-to-one, -one, it's perfectly fine and legal. Barack Obama got the same thing as well. He cleaned up like nobody's business from all the financial firms. He got invited to give speeches to Wall Street all over the place. And you might say, well, Barack Obama's really good at giving a speech, but I'm like, sure, okay, but is he hundreds of thousands of pounds good enough? Is that something you really need as a business expense? Why would you actually do that? And why yeah. would so many groups do it immediately after he finished his office? And the answer is, it is a bribe, but because it is removed by temporal, you know, distance, it doesn't count as one. Which is and so why, to you, if you are ever an MP, then you should live with a limited income for the rest of your life. Yeah. I would agree. I think MPs should be required to live but on, like, state-derived uh, Have you considered? Forever. Have you considered that this is just like, inherent human nature and the way things work, and we can't have, a, like, a society with a government where they don't, like, you know... A f like a private corporation doesn't close centre parks once every three weeks so they can hunt people for sport. <laughs> <laughs> they can ah, just they close centre parks. Like they don't need to close it. <laughs> uh, well, that's it. That's the news nuggets, which has been quite a bit. So, shall we? Shall we do the main topic tonight, guys? Shall we talk about now. strikes? I think we should just comment <laughs> a commentary and clock off. Yeah, yeah there's just something. There's something. There's something so inherently draining whenever we talk about the inner machinations of the Labour Party. Yeah. Well, would you like to hear about actual organised labour instead? Yeah, yes. all right. All right. So we, we said tonight we were going to cover SAG-AFTRA and the WGA who are on strike, and we will explain who they are in a minute. But we are aware that we get a lot of people tune in whenever we do like big current topics and they're tuning in for the first time. And since we're going to talk about unions this week, we're going to deliberately start by making this as accessible as possible and explaining our understanding of how unions work up front. So just a note for listeners, if you're familiar with all of this that we're about to lay out, you know, just bear with us. It's for yeah. the sake of people who if, are coming for the first, first time. If you're a first-time listener, you know what I mean? We're going to we're gonna softball you and not just spend the previous 45 minutes talking about fucking Keir Starmer. And like yeah, let's dive right in. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm working on the assumption that they'll have skipped over the, the starting part if they were really well, interested in Well, fucking go back. We didn't do it for sport. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand if you did skip over and you jumped here welcome let's talk about it so for those in the uk who are sitting here wondering why are we talking about some american because like, it's media... our fucking podcast and we do what we want is the true answer but the fake answer i'm going to give you is because it does actually matter so all these american like unions are currently on strike in like their entertainment sector why does it matter to us and according um you know just apart from general principles of solidarity other workers and all of that um we actually this might does not make any more marvel movies yeah <laughs> well it might actually affect the creative industries over here in the uk um the union for creative industries uh back has actually said that the u.s strikes could hit and potentially halt uk production so it is worth understanding what is going on over there and why does it matter before we get to that let's talk about the basics of unions so i'm going to ask a question here how does a capitalist make money uh through blood yeah Cool. Yeah. Okay, we got the Marxist theory answer in. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be fair. I'm gonna give you the, the definition that is commonly used in business school, right? Which is, <laughs> oh, which get is the big brain answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is is there a a pop up book that goes along with this? Yeah. Other <laughs> other more real schools are available. <laughs> no, no, no. It's business school, not economics. So they the yeah, they call this the Frankfurt School. <laughs> <laughs> there is a puppet show after no for, for real though for real though the definition is that it's sales price minus materials costs minus tools costs 
minus labor costs equals profit. Get the fuck and out of here. And sa- if you think no, that no, sounds... There's, there's three question marks missing in there. Yeah, well, but it is. I mean, it straight up is. If, the, if you take wow. what you're selling it for, and then you subtract the cost of materials, the cost of labor, and the cost Business of things... Business school is not you. fucking real, man. And, well, uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the actual... Here's crash the actual, for adults. Here's the... Here's the actual joke, Alistair. Soft play that is area, all- you know? <laughs> the actual joke, Alistair, is that that is also the Marxist definition of how capitalists make money. Because, believe it or not, most of what Marx taught on fundamentals of like how capital is made and produced is just repeated wholesale in business school, yeah, but, I feel but from like, the I feel other like, direction. I feel like business in business school, that's like the entire first year, whereas in Marxist theory, that's like page one. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're not right. Like, the, the business yeah, school is basically... Oh, don't even... I, I don't have 20 hours spare right now, Jamie. <laughs> so, like, the thing about the thing, the thing thing about the Marxist theory is, like, its fundamentals are recognised as correct by business school. they just like, yes, and this is how we exploit labour with it. Which kind of gets us into this next section, because if your materials costs are fixed by the commodities market, you can't, like, get copper for cheaper. It's, like, priced in. And if your tools costs yeah, are fixed Ian by Nassier the industry... Yeah, in his grave. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and tool costs are fixed by the industry market. Like, you can't buy a fucking JCB for cheaper. And if the sales price has been kept down by your competitors, because, you, know, you, you know, you can't go lower, you know, um, they're already undercutting you, etc. Um, the only way to increase profits is to either increase your market share by selling more stuff or to lower your labor costs. And if you're a huge corporation that's market dominant, you're already selling as much as you can. Um, and as an aside, that's why planned obsolescence is a thing. It's to make sure that you've got return customers when you've already saturated the market. Yeah. So what, we, what we've basically established here, very simply, is that it's in companies' interests, capitalist interests, to try and cut down on labor costs as much as pros- possible because that increases your profit. And for many large companies, that's the only way to actually increase their profits reliably. It's so, the easiest saving. If you've ever had a retail job, you know, the first thing that they'll do is they'll cut down on the fucking hours as soon as the area manager shows up. That's why. Yep, absolutely. Which then leads us to a question. What is a union? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines it as... <laughs> a union is a bunch of workers coming together and deciding that they will negotiate together against their employer to ensure that they get better terms and conditions and to make sure that they don't get their, uh, you know, pay cut in order to increase the profits. Are we really explaining unions to the listeners? Well, I think it's important to understand these fundamentals because in particular with this strike, there is an important question, which is how does a union work? Like, how do they actually succeed at what they do? Right? Because, you know, it's one thing... I mean, that's one thing, but what is a union is something else entirely. Like, do you want me to get get a costume out and do Baby Shark for them as well? Listen, three or four episodes ago, I asked, what is a Star Wall? So I'll allow it. (laughs) That felt, like, fucking redundant as well, to be fair. Well, we're just a redundant podcast, Jamie. Glad you're finally on board. Yeah, that's, like, basically fucking fact. So, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, but in all seriousness, like unions work by essentially recognizing that labor and management capital, the people who actually own the companies, are in opposition to each other, and that the only thing the workers have is the work they do. That is their leverage. And if they together decide that they are going to say down tools and stop working, or limit the amount of work they do, that directly inputs into the profits that are made on the other end by the capitalist, yeah. because less work done means less money out on the other end 
that is the only chip that unions basically have to play. To be fair, um, I think the important thing to highlight here is that obviously, like, yeah, the the chances are our listeners fucking very well know all this. And again, we did a fucking caveat this at the start of this, but it will get more fucking detailed soon. But um, this is not a fucking common, like, thing to think. Normal mm. people, if you will, don't actually immediately realise that their boss is their fucking enemy. Yeah, they don't. They think HR is their friend. Yeah. You know? The fools. And there's a lot of people who, whenever there's a big leftist issue comes up, they go, oh, I wonder what's this all about? And when they go looking for more information, it's inaccessible because they don't know these basic things. They don't understand, well, how does a union actually work? Why are they doing this? Can't everyone just get around a table and be friends? You know, you hear this. That's what the Um, union's trying to do. The way it literally is, and we will talk in depth about that in a minute. So at fundamental, like a union is a group of people organized together to try and talk to the boss as one rather than individual, because if you go to the boss on your own, you're just one person, the company's huge, they're not going to listen to you. But if you and your 50 mates all go together, then they actually have to pay attention. One person gets fired, one person misses a shift, not a big deal. Everyone clocks out for the day, the factory shuts down. That's how a union works. And the objective here, to be crystal clear, is not like they don't just want to do damage. The point is they want to protect terms and conditions and they want to get paid. And truth be told, they don't want to damage the business either because if the business gets damaged, they don't get a paycheck. It's just about making sure things are fair. It's almost as if bosses are actually surplus to requirements. Well... That's advanced theory, David. We're not getting to that. Yeah, page two of uh, Marcus' theory, a year two of business school. Yeah, absolutely. But there is a there is a question I seriously want to ask. You have to protect your phony baloney job. But there is, you know, on the subject of like unions in general and understanding that we are potentially getting people who've never really thought about this before. There is an important question to ask, which is: Are unions good or bad? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes, is, yes is the they answer. They are good, unless it's the GMB, in which case bad. Yeah, yeah right, so here's Fucking the other scabs. thing. A lot of A lot of time, when you hear about unions, it comes in the form of corporate media, who, for reasons which we are going to demonstrate in this actual episode, they are against unions. They don't want unions to prosper. They don't want people to be members of unions. Yeah. They don't want to talk about unions. Don't listen, and so, don't listen to the fake stream news. Well, I, I, I mean, it is, a, it is it is very enlightening like, whenever it is enlightening whenever you have like a fucking dipshit like Richard Madeley talking to Mick Lynch, and it's just <laughs> like you know watching a normal person just beat the shit out of a buffoon. Yeah, yeah. well, it, in this this very particular thing, we're going to talk about the actual unions which are tied into the news industry. So this is going to be very enlightening. You're going to like the back half of this, I promise. So, like. Different unions have different types of relationship with an employer. There's like genuine unions who are there to like advocate for the purposes of their workers. There's also unions that started off doing that and that since have kind of become politicized a bit. And I don't mean politics in the sense of like conservative versus liberal or Tory versus Labour. I just mean in a sense of Those are the same like, thing. No. But I mean in the sense of like generations of people who like, you know, they've handpicked their successors and there's like, you know, there is a cushy position to be made in being part of a union, so to speak. This is yeah, a thing, I mean, and we can't uh, deny that this exists across time and yeah, space. Yeah, a big, a big critique of unions is that whether whether a union's actual job is to represent its members or to ensure the continued existence of the union. Yeah, uh, exactly. And like this is this is a real thing, and we shouldn't shy away from it. We, you know, you should always recognise that, like with everything in life. There are good ones and there are bad ones. And there are also unions, which, as we said, we alluded to, are not 
actually what I would call real unions. They look like a union, they talk like a union, but their actual Although job the GMB. is to, their actual job is to head <laughs> off any meaningful concessions to workers by sitting there and, and making everyone think, oh, we're a union, we're fighting for you, pal. But then they go into the office room and they chat to, you know, the people in charge of the companies and like, right, okay, uh, what's the minimum we can give these guys to get them to go away? And they collect their paycheck off the back of that. So as with everything in life, if you want to know if a union is good or bad, don't go and talk to the employer because they will just tell you horse shit either way. Um, and don't rely on like the corporate media or anything. You actually have to do the research and you have to look at it. And one of the best ways to tell is to look for times when that union has fought for the workers and what they got out of it. Which kind of leads us to the final question. Why do unions go on strike? And we kind of answer it. It's, it's funny to watch your boss shit his pants. That's why. This <laughs> is true. Uh, basically, unions go on strike to get better conditions for their members. That's it. That's straight up it. And they don't just do it out of nowhere. Usually they have to be forced into it. Because remember, when they're on strike, when they're not working, they don't collect a paycheck. So you've got to ask a question. How bad do things have to get? before you're prepared to suspend your income in the hope that you can improve things further down the line. Big deal. And so that, that leads to, you know, two basic questions, important ones. First is, what is a strike? And the answer is it's just withholding labour, whether that's working to rule um, or whether it's actually just like not turning up at all um, or more likely standing outside the venue and encouraging others to boycott it and not go in. You know, um, it, the withdrawal of labour is a key component. <laughs> Sorry, I just remembered that fucking dipshit with the with the rail strikes. Oh, they I crossed the picket line and they didn't even fucking yell at me or call me a scab or anything. It's like, you don't work you don't work there, mate. Yeah. Which leads to the question of like uh what is a scab and why are they called that? And the answer, like this the term scab, it's insulting. It's intended as an insult. But what a scab is, is it's someone who undermines the negotiating power of unions by turning up to do work when a union is on strike. That's it. If a union calls a strike, they're withdrawing labour. That is their one leverage. If you go, well, fuck you guys, I'm going to work anyway, then you undermine the strike and undermine their power. That's where it comes from. And that's why that's why going into work for an employer while the union that is affiliated to that employer is on strike is a scabby, horrible thing to do because you're directly damaging the chance of these people who are suspending their incomes to try and get better conditions for everyone of actually succeeding. So, yeah. But on the other hand, you have to consider that you do get to drive a train. <laughs> once only if you're in the British only if you're in the British military and only once Jamie so that's 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 the kind of baseline that's us kind of laying out our theory and our understanding of how we come to it so let's actually now get into the particulars here starting with SAG-AFTRA so what is a SAG-AFTRA that's the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists right um, so they're a union and how do they actually work? And this is important. So there's a concept in union organizing called a closed shop. And oh, the we're idea not allowed them anymore. Well, we're not allowed them, but they still exist in some places. So the idea behind a closed shop goes like this. A union comes in and they negotiate for better rates for workers at a, you know, at a particular company or a particular location. Everyone who is a worker there gets the benefit of that negotiation. Like the unions don't just negotiate for themselves usually. It's been negotiating for everyone on the job. And it kind of has to be because like if the union members are suddenly getting higher pay, everyone else is going to demand higher pay as well. So it's just yeah. all in one. The idea of a closed shop then is that if you are if you join a company 
which is affiliated with a union, and that union is negotiating and getting you terms and conditions, you are required to either A, be a union member, like you have to join the union to get work there, or B, you still have to pay union dues out of your paycheck, even if you're not a union member. And the rationale is because you still get the benefit of the union going and doing all that organizing work for you. I remember when I started working for Asda years ago that uh, the uh, store manager telling me with glee that uh, I that there was an option to join GMB, but you don't have to because it's not a closed shop. It's like, thanks, man. Yeah. Really, really glad to know that GMB is representing this place and that I don't have to join them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing. Why closed shops, why are they necessary? Why are they a good thing, Right. And the answer is, well, okay, yes, it depends on the union. If it's GMB, who notoriously suck and aren't a real union, as far as I'm concerned, then sometimes not having closed shop is a good idea. But in general, the reason behind closed shops is to basically ensure that the unions continue to have the resources they, they need in order to do their work, you know? Um, and it's, it's kind of important because... The SAG-AFTRA is a closed shop union. Everywhere they work that's not legislated against it, they run closed shops as much as possible. Um, they don't get to do it everywhere, but they get to do it in California and over on, in New York, which is important. It's so the, like states the, the in two important places they can do it. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, places in between where they sometimes film don't necessarily have that. Um, what a lot of states in the US have been doing is passing what they would describe as union prevention laws. They're called right to work laws, but in practice they're union prevention laws. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote you now from Backstage. Uh, Backstage is a, a publication and organizing hub um, that served as the number one resources, uh, absolutely like by every metric, um, for performance to find work. Um, and basically it's like, they've got like 100,000 members and it's, it's basically it's the industry talking shop for you know the creative industry in the States. So here's what they say. States without union prevention laws require workers in a unionized workplace to pay dues to the body as person negotiations benefit all employees. This requirement means that because the union is negotiating for worker benefits, all workers must compensate the union whether they want to or not. Workplaces in these states are known as closed shops, which means that you, to be hired in a unionized workplace, you must be a union member. For an actor... This means getting a gig on a unionized production can result in automatic union membership. It might also mean that union actors are prioritized in audition processes. States with union prevention laws, however, do not mandate employees to pay a fee to a union. This intentional loophole means that even if a union negotiates for worker benefits, the workers don't need to join the union. Workplaces in these states are known as open shops, which means one doesn't have to be a union member to be hired in a unionized workplace. For an actor, this means that if you're hired at a unionized theater, you have a choice whether to sign a union contract or not in a uh, you know right to work state. Yeah. These po these policies influence the degree that labor unions can organize and gain momentum in certain states. In states without union prevention laws, some unions have built in constituencies and revenue streams like you start a union immediately there's money there that you can work with. Uh, in states with union prevention laws, it's hard for unions to recruit members when workers could benefit from a union's activism without having to contribute to the cause. Without recruitment, the union finds a workplace majority uh, the union lacks a workplace majority and funding. Um, and as it said, you know, as I said before, California, Illinois, and New York all are, you know, um, they don't Two have shops. union prevention laws. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, in practice, they still fight the whole right to work landscape alongside their, you know, people in other states because it affects them all. Yeah. So th that's the first thing to understand. This um, SAG-AFTRA, they are a closed shop. And they have very particular rules around what you can and cannot do. 
um, and it's intentional to make sure that their union maintains um, its authority, maintains its power and its ability to negotiate and win against a much larger organization we'll get to in a minute. In contrast, the Writers Guild of America is another union. Um, they aren't a closed shop. They Not exactly. They actually have a slightly more complicated rule set. Um, so the way it works is you don't have to join the WGA to work on any particular production. Um, instead, you become eligible to join or and then can take part in certain WGA-only kind of events um, after you've done enough work in the industry. So it doesn't prevent people getting a start, but what it does mean is that once you're sufficiently experienced, they take you on. Mm. And there's actually, you know, typical writers, there's a points-based system for this that's clearly documented, um, and it's based on the kind of work you're doing. So... They have like two classes of membership. They've got full membership for which you need 24 points or units and anything less than that is associate membership. And the way it works is associate dues are way less than full membership dues in order to help people who are just starting out. Yeah. And so they, they have like a whole schedule. Um, for example, you gain two units or two points for each week, each complete week of employment with a guild's jurisdiction on a week-to-week basis. So you just work enough time in any role yeah. that is sort of guild-affiliated and eventually you qualify to join. And then it goes all the way up. And like, if you manage to sell a screenplay for a feature-length theatrical motion picture, radio play or teleplay 90 minutes or longer, you immediately get 24 points and can join right away. And so it's kind of fair system that's there. It's like, if you make it, then congratulations, welcome in. If you're just getting started out, say you're attached to a writer's room or you're doing things like polishing a script or whatever, if you do enough of that work, then you're qualified to get in. And so anyone who tells you that like the WGA is some kind of cartel or anything like that, that they're excluding people, it's horseshit. They're absolutely not. They've intentionally structured things to prevent this. Now, let's compare and contrast why is this difference in place? And the answer is that when it comes to actually filming a production with actors, right, you know, Screen Actors Guild, American Federation Television Radio Artists, everyone on set has to turn up and work together and it's all scheduled and it's all highly, uh, you know, rigorous. You can't really have a drop-in, drop-out, who's a member of a production, who's not, is too chaotic. Meanwhile, when it comes to writing these scripts and selling them, etc., it's much looser because it's much more commission-based and it's much more someone submits a speculative script and it gets read and maybe they decide to pick it up or not. So that's the reason for the difference in these structures. It's all about effective ways of working that enable negotiation to take place in the back end. Is this so, why any TV show that was made around the Writers Guild strike usually has a bunch of dog shit episodes in the middle of whatever season was affected because they've pulled a load of randoms who are not yet eligible to be members of the Writers well, Guild? Yes, yes and no. So... Um, as it turns out, when the WGA goes on yeah. strike, they some actually, TV shows are just like that. Well, <laughs> it's it's more it's more complicated than that. So when the WGA goes on strike, they actually issue a rule which is if you break our strike, if you come in as someone who's not WGA affiliated and you start selling screenplays, you're free to do that, but you will never be a member of the WGA ever. And when our strike concludes and when we're back to working, we will remember that you did this to us. So, you know, well, it's, it's like an anti- thing. What, what a shocking and terrible thing to be doing. Like, I think it, it, it's perfectly it's, reasonable. It's not, it's not, it's but like that, that's exactly the kind of fucking shit that, like, you know, the the, the big production companies pull all the fucking yeah. time when they can get away yeah. with it. Well, like, so they, they are very precise about this. And to, you know, as we'll go on and discuss in detail, like, they're not unreasonable about shit. So, no. yes, there were, there, there are situations where you can sell productions and stuff 
whilst the WGA is on a strike. And they're very clear about what's kosher and what's not, what they're happy with people doing and what undermines their bargaining position. And that's what it comes down to. In every case, it's a question of, are you help hurting our ability to negotiate to get our members better results? And if you're not, they don't care. They really don't care. Um, and they've, you know, they've even issued clarifications during the strike because they saw people getting hate on social media for doing things like um, finishing out productions. And the WAGA is like having to come in and go, no, 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 it's cool. These guys, like they've agreed to our interim agreement, etc. They're fine. Don't go after them. And we'll talk more about their strategy and that later. But now that we've defined like who they are and how they work, we've got to ask the really important question, which is, why are they both striking? Why are SAG-AFTRA and the WGA both striking right now? So let's ask us another question. Who it's are the rise striking? of the machines. Well, you've you've spoiled a bit. We are getting to that. But who are they striking against, first of all? Which is the is Alliance of Motion... Go on. Cunts. Yes. It's the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP. Uh, their members include the major motion picture studios, Paramount Pictures, Sony Pictures, Universal Pictures, Walt Disney Studios, and Warner Bros., it also includes the principal broadcast television networks. This is important. Pay attention. Including ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC. It includes the Aren't streaming all services. All of those owned by Disney now. And uh, don't Boxes. think all of them are. Also includes streaming services like Netflix, Apple TV Plus, and Amazon, as well as certain cable television networks and other independent film and television production companies. Just so you know, by the way, the Plus in Apple TV Plus is silent. Oh, okay, sure, whatever, don't care. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yeah, we'll so, just batter Trent Reznor. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> um, but just like bear this in mind, because when we get to demands later, remember the size of these companies, remember how huge they are, and remember the compensation that their executives are getting. So that's who they're up against. Why are they actually striking? Like, what requires them to do this? And to do that, we need to have a very brief word about something called inflation. We're going to keep this real quick. Inflation is the tendency over time for your money to be worth less than it was the year before. Prices go up, you can buy less with the dollars or pounds in your pocket, right? We're not going to get into why, it, you know, inflation no, isn't always... Here. Yeah, it isn't always good, it isn't always Money's bad. Money's not real, but, it's bad, etc., etc. Yeah, but what's important is that every year there's inflation. As you, banks try and keep it at around 2% for complicated reasons we won't get into, but it happens every year, which means that every year... Unless you are getting a pay rise of at least 2%, you are getting paid effectively less. You are getting less, you're less able to purchase and sustain yourself than you were the year before. And so in this way, inflation necessitates that unions fight for pay increases. Like if they do nothing, if they just take the same pay every year, then effectively you're getting a pay cut for your members. And over time, this really does compound. If you want to see an example of it in action, look at the fucking Live NHS in, in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the way you know the way they tend to do this, the Writers Guild of America, for example, is instead of doing it every year, they just agree a single bump every three years. They renegotiate their contract. Um, so bear that in mind. Um, this is, so they're required to like come back to the negotiating table. Um, I want to be clear that just because they end up in a strike over pay because they can't make an agreement, it doesn't necessarily mean that all productions are stopped. Like I said before. Um, SAG-AFTRA and the WGA do have an interim agreement available with specific productions, which is namely where a production says, yeah, you know what, we'll meet your dem demands, your terms, that's fine. We'll, is that okay if we carry on working? Um, or it's where it's like a, like a very unique circumstance where it would be pointless to like shut down the production. Like if someone's doing something that was agreed by charity and it's, it's like very unique, then they'll sometimes go, yeah, you get a pass, you can go for it. 
Um, again, the goal isn't indiscriminate harm, it's to bolster contract negotiations. And they really do want people to take up the interim agreement. Um, I'm going to read a quote from him. To be crystal clear, once an agreement is in place, we fully encourage all of our SAG-AFTRA members to work under that agreement and to promote work made under that agreement. The more projects that get made with the interim agreement, the weaker the AMPTP becomes. And so here we have a glimpse into their strategy. They want to bolster their competitors to the AMPTP so that essentially... Yeah. They're sitting there not making anything because the you know the unions are on strike, and meanwhile the competitors who are willing to play ball with the union, they get to make their productions, and their productions are actually good. It's so, divide and conquer. It is. It, it straight up is. So this is why you know this is the basics of why they have to go do these negotiations. This is what happens when they go into strike. They don't just like down tools and burn everything down. Um, but what do they actually want? And I want to actually read you the actual stated demands of, you know, SAG-AFTRA and the WGA. So we'll start with SAG-AFTRA. Our goal in this negotiation is to ensure our members working in film, television, and streaming slash new media can continue to earn a professional living with a contract that honours our contributions. We need a contract that will increase contributions to our benefit plans and protect members from erosion of income due to inflation and reduced residuals. Um, I'll explain what residuals are in a minute unregulated use of generative AI and demanding self-taped auditions. So let's go through this a minute. What's a residual? Um, if you take part in a production, right, it's filmed and then that can be shown forever. You know, it doesn't just disappear. So you get paid a one-off fee and then you get what's called residuals. And residuals are every time that production gets shown again, whether it's on TV or a DVD is issued or whatever, you get a tiny cut of the value of that thing so that you continue to gain income. Because the companies continue to gain income off of reproducing it, why should you not benefit from that labor? Because that's um, communism. Well, go figure. So residuals are a big issue. Um, it's something that they have to argue about quite frequently. Whenever a new media form comes along, the companies will all try and not pay residuals for it. And one of the big reasons that SAG-AFTRA and the WGA tend to go to strike is over that very issue. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, so the, yeah, the, you know, residuals, uh, they've talked about the inflationary issues. They've talked about self-taped auditions. This is an interesting one. So normally in the acting business, they host auditions and like you've seen like you know those videos of like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg holding audition sessions where people show up and like they give an audition and it's taped and then they make a decision yeah. um yeah Spielberg get... uh, Lucas decides they're not racist enough yeah <laughs> but here's the thing um depending on the audition you can get paid for that there is a day rate for that because it's using up your time and effort right if you are a serious committed actor it's your livelihood and you get invited to like several different auditions then you that's time out of your yeah, that's day time you could be doing something else yeah yeah exactly so there is a there's a um, sag after a negotiated day rate for auditions um it doesn't necessarily apply to everyone there are circumstances when it's like you know open casting calls which don't quite follow this but generally if you've been invited to audition for something sag after says you should get fucking paid for that whether or not they actually take you up you should at least get like a little day rate for taking time out of your schedule to go and do do that when you could be pursuing other opportunities um Companies have started demanding self-taped auditions. They're like, yeah, just record something on your webcam or whatever and send it in. You don't get paid for those, and it's it's bullshit. And this is particularly important for new actors and actresses who are just starting out, um, who, you know, their time really is valuable. You know, they're taking time away from their shift at Denny's or whatever in order to try and break into the industry properly. 
and uh, this is the shit they're getting, you know? But they also mentioned unregulated use of generative AI. Hold that thought, put a pin in that, it's very important. We now turn to the WGA, the Writers Guild of America. So they, being writers, they are very clear and they actually issue something called the Pattern of Demands, which is what their members have voted to say, this is explicitly exactly what we are negotiating for. The Pattern of Demands is a constitutionally required statement of general objectives of the MBA negotiations. On March 7th, 2023, the, pa the 2023 Pattern of Demands was approved by WGA members, 98.4% voting yes and 1.6% voting no. So this is, what you're about to hear is not just like, oh, the big wigs have decided this. The actual members of the WGA mm -hmm. have in mass said, we want this. So let's read through it. Compensation and residuals. Increase minimum compensation significantly to address the devaluation in writing in all areas of television, new media, and features. Standardize compensation and residual terms for features, whether released theatrically or on streaming. Ooh. address the abuse of mini rooms to explain a mini room is rather than pulling together a full writer's room and running it for a while instead you just get people into work just for a few days guys it's fine um you know we'll, we'll do like a single weekend and we'll hammer the scripts out and it'll all be good uh, rather than an ongoing writer's room they refer to just a bunch of guys series. writing in a dark kitchen kind of yeah mini rooms are a bad way to write and companies have started trying to do them more and more to get around all the terms and conditions attached to writer's rooms which exist for a reason I'll talk about that in a minute. Ensure appropriate television series writing compensation throughout entire process of pre-production, production, and post-production. Again, yeah. there's this thing where they've started doing that, oh, we'll just get you on at the start just for a little bit. And then they like fucking fire them and don't give them the actual compensation that they should be deserved. And mm -hmm. as a consequence, this affects the writing quality immensely. Expand span protections to cover all television writers. There's currently writers who just aren't covered by this, and they're like, no, this is bullshit. Everyone should be covered by our negotiations. Get them in. Apply MBA minimums to comedy variety programs made for new media. So, uh, you know, the Tonight Show and all the rest of the ones on major cable, they're covered by this shit. And uh, the new media, including, like, you know, uh, YouTube and various other places, they currently aren't. And they're like, ah, this is bullshit. That's the direction the, the world is moving in. We need to expand to there as well. Um Increase residuals for undercompensated reuse markets. Uh, that's complicated, but basically there's places where they like resell or redistribute the like existing like footage and they're not really well, like they weren't a big issue back in the day, so they let it slide. But now it's kind of like, oh, hang on, more and more people are watching stuff here or whatever. We need to actually get our residuals properly uh, compensated. And then resist, uh, restrict uncompensated use of excerpts. Uh, which is dead simple. It's like if someone takes an excerpt from a film or movie or whatever and just uses it, like a big company does, not like just a you know yeah, YouTube yeah, yeah. reviewer or whatever. Um, sometimes they just don't pay anyone for using it. They're like, no, you're using that to promote your company or whatever. We should get paid for that. Um, next demand is under pension plan and health fund, which is basically increased contributions. Thank you very much. Um, in well, professionals... Something like, something like 80%, 85% or something of like of SAG after... Of, uh, yeah, SAG after... Um, workers like don't meet the minimum threshold for uh, health insurance, which is like twenty five, twenty seven thousand dollars or something, something like that's that. That's true. It's not that different from a WGA, by the way. So yeah, it's you know it matters, and that's why these negotiations matter on those issues. Returning to the WGA, they have this section which is really interesting, and we're going to be talking about it at length, which is professional standards and protection in the employment of writers. 
For feature contracts in which compensation falls below a specified threshold, require weekly payment of compensation and a minimum of two steps. So like, no, you don't get to abuse the interns, right? Uh, strengthen regulation of options and exclusivity in television writer employment contracts. You don't get just get to hold an option on my script I've sent you and keep me in limbo forever. At some point you have to shit or get off the pot. Regulate use of material regulate use of material produced using artificial intelligence or similar technologies. That mm-hmm. sounds familiar. Didn't we just mention that a minute ago? Hold that thought. Enact measures to combat discrimination and harassment and to promote pay equity. It's fairly good. Uh, revise and expand all arbitrator lists. I'm going to be honest, I couldn't find what that actually means, um, but I'm going to presume it's fairly reasonable given that everything else on this list is as well. Yeah. I think, I think, but I don't know, I think it relates to who actually is allowed to come in and arbitrate when there's been a contract violation. Um, and they basically want to like you know make that more readily available, but don't quote me on that. Uh, again, this is real inside industry stuff and I couldn't find anything good on it. Yeah. So... That's their actual terms, and as I'll talk about later, you won't hear that anywhere, because media just doesn't report it, because it's all very reasonable, and anyone who listens to it would go, yeah, that seems fair enough. Let's get into specifics. Sorry, just quickly, on on the fact that this is reasonable, like, it's weird how straightforward and reasonable that is, because Mm -hmm. anytime you think of a union asking for shit in the UK, they've either asked for far too fucking much, or... They've asked for nowhere near enough. And when I say far too fucking much, I mean they've asked for like, you know, we've had fucking, I think the doctors' unions were asking for like 20% or some shit. But the reason they were asking for 20% is because for fucking years, they just ate shit and just took like 1% or 2%. And now they're having to ask for 20 So now they seem unreasonable because they spent years asking for fuck all, just accepting what they were fucking given and not actually taking action. Again, the quality of the union really matters. A yes. good union doesn't have to ask that much year to year. A bad union that lets things drag will eventually have to play catch up and look like an asshole. Yeah. Um, it's 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 kind of it's kind of ridiculous. Let's talk about the, this strike though, um, because there was something mentioned on both of those lists, and it actually really matters. Um, Jamie called it. It's the rise of the machines. Both of those explicitly mention artificial intelligence. So let's, let's cast our mind back. In 2007, the Writers Guild of America went on strike. Um, and everyone remembers this because television was dog shit for quite yep. some time as a yep. consequence. R.I.P. Uh, Battlestar Galactica Season 3. We have yeah. the And it, this actually is getting flagged up now. People are saying, oh, you don't want another strike because it'll all be terrible like it was back then. But let's compare and contrast. Um, what were they after last time when they went on strike? And that they eventually got as well, by the way. Um, was it more reality the- shows because we got that? <laughs> Uh, no, the key issues of contention included DVD residuals, um, which were replacing rerun syndication as a primary profit generator. So again, you know, I said residuals, you get paid. Back in the day, DVDs were just taken off, right? And at, up until that point, residuals had come from network syndication. So your film gets shown on different networks around the US. In 2007, they were like, shit, they're making money from DVDs and we're not getting any residuals from DVDs. And meanwhile, they're ending syndication. Now, fuck that. We need some, We need residuals from DVDs. Um, they also went to strike over, and this is hilarious, union jurisdiction over animation and reality program writers. Remember how all the reality TV exploded back in 2007? Mm-hmm. It's because reality TV producers weren't unionized, and that was one of the things they went to strike oh over. Um, and then finally, compensation for new media, which is content written for or distributed through emerging digital technologies such, such as the internet, aka Netflix. 
Like, that's what they went on strike over back then. Again, all pretty reasonable. This time, you've heard the list. It's a little bit different. And they both mentioned AI. So here's where I need to explain the AI bit. I'll try and keep this brief and avoid any of the Bitcoin wankery you hear on, like, you know, Twitter. So what actually Challenge is Challenge level it? impossible. Uh, so <laughs> let's, ask, let's ask a question. What actually is AI? Just made, to cut through the bull- bullshit. Yeah. To yeah. cut through the bullshit, what they're calling AI is not AI. It's not artificial intelligence. It's not like some thinking machine. It's not that at all. Spicy actually, autocomplete. It is spicy autocomplete. <laughs> what it is, is a sophisticated text prediction or image prediction, just data prediction tool. Um, and what it depends on is it depends on the data sets that it is trained on. All it's doing is working out what should the next pixels configuration be or what should the next word be statistically based on this very large data set that I have sitting in front of me. And that's how it works. Or and shit it de- people have made. Well, yes, but it, it ultimately depends on the data set. And a data set is literally just like fat, hundreds of thousands, millions of books, for example, for a text-based one, or hundreds of thousands, you know, maybe even millions of images for an image-based one. And then there's like training steps where the person, you know, trains it on the data. And it was like, you know, um, the statistical output goes, oh, based on statistics, I think this should be the next output for the input you've given me. And the trainer has to sit down and go, yes, that's good, more like that. Or goes, no, that's bad, less like that. And that creates what's called statistical weightings. It is, at the end of the day, spicy autocomplete. That's what the AI actually is. Um, now, as I've kind of implied, this limits what it can actually produce artistically. And this is very important. It depends on the training data. When you look at like DALI or any of these other ones producing like images, what they're actually doing is they are taking a data set of hundreds of thousands or maybe even a million images and it is mixing and matching different parts of it, depending on its weightings, to come up with something that looks new but is actually based on the data in the data set. It also can't it's produce nightmares. Yes. <laughs> this is important. These AIs cannot produce something that is not conceptually in their data set, right? If you were to go to them and say, um, draw me a Vulcan from Star Trek, it could only do that if someone had inputted images of Vulcans from Star Trek into it, and it had been you know, trained and weighted to understand what that meant. Otherwise, you're probably going to get like a fucking Falcon or something. Yeah, exactly, right? And people, you know, post funny images all the time. We're like, ha I asked the data set to give me this, and it didn't know what I meant and gave me this instead. That's because it depends on what's in the data set, right? So these data sets are crucially important. Here's the problem. For the statistical tool to work, it needs very, very large data sets. If it's got smaller data sets, you start to notice something, which is that it's just spitting out portions of that data set, sometimes wholesale. So in order to be able to do something that looks fairly convincingly as novel, these data sets need to be very, very large. And I'm talking like millions of images and like hundreds of thousands of books and all the rest of it. Um, Here's a problem. That data, by nature, to build something that size, you have to acquire it illegally. You have to acquire it without consent. Because getting like, if you walk up to an author and go, hey, Stephen King, can I include your complete works in my data set? Stephen King is quite rightly going to go, What's that data set going to be used for? Oh, I'm training an AI to produce new writing that I can then sell. Uh, no, I'd like to be compensated for that, please, if I'm going to let you do it at all. Oh, well, okay, I'll try another writer. It just doesn't work. So what they actually do to build these data sets is just steal shit by scraping it from the internet. Wholesale. Including, like, fan fiction forums, etc. 
like archive of our own, etc. They, they've all been scraped in order to produce the data sets that do this stuff. Um, Show what, me the Wikipedia AI. Uh, David, <laughs> there is... I know, um, we talked about this already, I know. Yeah, right, like Disney have done that. Um so this is this is there's an equity problem here, which is that if you are a creative and you're producing material, if this then gets scraped for a data set and that data set is then used to produce imagery or to produce a script uh, that is then doing you out of a job, then they are literally using your work to fire you. They are stealing from you and using it to make you redundant. And the art that's produced will end up being shitty because it can't come up with anything new. It, it physically can't. It it might come up with a sim uh, like a simulation of something that looks like new, but if you're familiar with the underlying data, if you're well reefed in it, then you'll recognise oh that looks like such and such as art. Oh well, that looks very that. much like it's lifted. They they used the fucking fake AI bullshit for the the opening titles of that Secret Invasion show, and it all looked absolutely dog shit. Absolutely. By the way, in case you're thinking, well, I mean, isn't that just how a person learns? Uh to put it in perspective, if you learn to write, you do not have stored within your memory every single book that you've ever read perfectly. The data sets do. And it is, in fact, possible with the right engineer prompt. Once again, referring to the Wikipedia AI, where I assure yeah. you, those people do have every book memorized. Oh, very funny. <laughs> but in all seriousness, like you can actually engineer prompts to extract data from a data set. Um, some artists who are part of a, a suit that's going forward have done this and shown that by introducing the right terms, you can extract just straight up their art from it. Not even like something that looks like their art, but like their art that was yeah. digitized and stored in the data set is in there. You just need the right section of magic words to reproduce it. That's theft. It's just straight up is. So what does this actually mean for the writers? I do, I, I do like how like AI is essentially a kind of sphinx that uh, you can only <laughs> receive, like, you can receive the true, like, the true knowledge of the universe, which is the original stolen art, or just, just completely abstruse, unintelligible dog shit, uh, which makes no yeah. sense to anyone and is has no heart or soul in it. Well, the key thing about this to understand from a labour perspective is that essentially it's a tool for obfuscating theft. Where did Paul Ellie and- Mason get here? <laughs> i mean that's that's what it is so um what does it mean for the writers in particular so would it horrify you to know that wg writers have been asked to do polishes on scripts that have been made using ais trained on data sets with their own previous work along with their predecessors work um no no that wouldn't horrify you it would horrify it wouldn't me surprise me I'm a very yeah, surprising, you know, no, horrifying, yes. So a man got this released is... from four and got brought back in on five the next day. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> this is the thing, though. You've got writers that basically like, they've written scripts for decades. Their predecessors have written scripts. They've all been gathered together by the studios and studios have trained an AI and got the AI to produce a script. They've looked at it and went, oh, this is kind of dog shit. Let's hire a writer to just give it a polish. Not write as a script. We've got a script. We just want a writer to do a polish for which we just pay them a one-off fee and then we move on. Yeah. This because, compared- like, you know, And that'll be the same amount of work. Given the shit you're going to get out of an AI, that'll be the same amount of work as writing the fucking script originally, I bet. But yeah. it's classified differently and they can pay less it for is. it. It absolutely is. It's even classified differently by the union. Doing a polish on a script gets you, I think, like one quarter of the points that writing the script would, if I recall correctly. Um because they recognise like polishing yeah, because, is like a, a polish a polish is normally Joss Whedon just going through and just inserting like fucking 
shit dialogue <laughs> in an already finished like film about a bus or something. But they fly now. Yeah. yeah, but like but fucking uh, a polish you know, of the AI, AI would be... polishing an AI one is essentially just writing a new script. I bet. Yeah, pretty much. But it's even more insulting when it's a script that's been made using you and your peers' work without any compensation. And and this is key. You don't qualify for residuals on a polish. And you don't qualify for writing credits either. You um, Instead, it's just produced by the AI, so they don't have to pay residuals to anyone. That's why they're using it. And again, it only works because they've got the scripts that previously have been made, and which weren't necessarily approved of this use. So that's the problem from a writer's perspective. For actors, it's even worse. For actors, this is actually real kind of horror show stuff. Um, AI voice generation and facial mapping is a threat when you combine it with VFX work. Specifically, younger actors are being pressured into giving up rights to their likeness and voice, submitting to being digitally scanned for a one-off paycheck. Um, right, you know, we've got actors who are saying, oh yeah, I applied to be an extra on X. I showed up and on the day of like, okay, so your paycheck is in two halves. Half of your paycheck is for going out and like doing the performance. The other half is to go into that trailer and get scanned and you can't do one unless you agree to do the other, essentially. And when you get scanned, you're signing over your rights for your digital likeness and voice. And they're intentionally targeting new actors in the hopes that when like the future Scarlett Johansson takes off, they've already got them scanned, etc. So they've got the rights to use their likeness and fuck them, essentially. And this, by the way, has a lot to do with why Disney wants to do digital reproductions of old Star Wars characters rather than using new actors. It's all about residuals. And if this sounds like sci-fi, it's been in the pipeline for a yeah, while. And also, not just that, but the fact that fucking, uh, fucking Han Solo is a good jillion fucking years old now. And like... <laughs> well, yeah, but they could... Like, there's nothing stopping them from hiring a younger actor to play Han Solo. Okay, it didn't work out that well in practice. But, like, you know... The reason they prefer to do the digital versions of it, including like, you know, Luke, etc., is just because they get to avoid residuals. Yeah. It is really as simple as that. And they and haven't done that with Han Solo, specifically because they know if they do, Harrison Ford will crash a plane into Disney HQ. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, but here's the thing. This has been brewing for a while. Would it surprise you to know that Jet Li opted out of appearing in the Matrix sequels because they wanted to scan all of his martial arts and own the rights to reproduce it along with his moves. <laughs> this is this real. They wanted, they wanted Jet Li to play Oracle, and he's like, oh yeah, I'd be well up for that. And they're like, okay, so we just want you to get into this trailer and do all of your martial arts moves for like two weeks so we can then reproduce them on the computer <laughs> and sign... Yeah, this is true. There's, a, there's an article in IndieWire, which I'm not going to read because, you know, you've got the point. But uh, yeah, it's it's really quite terrible. He did not want to lose ownership of his martial arts moves. And so he turned them down. And that's why we got that other guy I can't remember playing Oracle in the Matrix sequels. So this is this is a big thing. It's just that back um, then they tried it on big names. Not, now not, they're to doing... be, not to out myself as the Matrix nerd here, like, but uh, Oracle is the old lady. Uh, no, Seraph, excuse me. I apologize. Um, but yeah, so like... They tried it initially, they tried it on like the big names, the big names could fight back. So now they're just systematically doing it to the small names in the hopes that when they're one day big names, they'll already have them. Um, this is a problem. This is a big deal. And so AI is problematic from a labor perspective, but to really drive home how bad it is for everything, I'm going to read you a very short article. I know we're going long tonight, but David said we've got permissions on the topic. So I'd like to read you an article from The New Scientist. It's not long. It's called Union Strike to Save the World from Bad TV and Movies. 
The threat of AI content hangs over many creative industries. Journalists, actors, and screenwriters need to push back against automation. And it's by someone called Annalee Newitz. So, once upon a time, way back in innocent year 2008, I founded a blog about science and science fiction called io9. It was a fun job where I worked with eight or so full-time writers who were, as far as I know, completely human. After I moved on, io9 continued to thrive under the stewardship of some fine biological entities until last month. That's when I opened the site to discover one of the most terrible posts ever written, entitled <laughs> simply, A Chronological List of Star Wars Movies and TV Shows. <laughs> Reader, Locked it was neither... thousand pages of furious debate. <laughs> Reader, it was neither chronological, nor was it a complete list. <laughs> it was, of course, written by artificial intelligence. I wasn't I mean, the, the only... thing is, though, if you asked, like, fucking, do you know what I mean? If you asked like 10 Star Wars nerds to give you that list, you'd get 10 different answers. So might as well. It's only because of the great that. schism over the holiday special, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so like that, that has a point, as weird as it is. Um, she goes on to say, I wasn't the only person pissed off by this development. Did it include did it include Caravan of Courage? <laughs> Man, I actually I went and looked it up. They withdrew the article, but I did go and track it down and it just had made up shit in it. <laughs> like Star Wars stuff that just I mean, never existed. All of Star Wars is made up. Very good, right? Yes, you're incredibly funny. That's an amazing bit. You're a comedy genius, Jamie, and we're lucky to have you. Moving on. And they were right to say it. I wasn't the only person pissed off by this development. io9 deputy editor James Whitbrook, who wasn't consulted before the article was posted, wrote an outraged letter to io9 parent company GeoMedia detailing every mistake in the poorly written blob of text. The AI inclusion blew up into big news, covered everywhere from the Washington Post to Hollywood trade publication Variety. <laughs> yeah, AI, AI was... was doing great until it took aim at one m maligned <laughs> subsection of society, the Star Wars <laughs> don't nerds. Fuck, yeah, don't fuck with the Star Wars nerds. Uh, for its part, GeoMedia claimed this was just a start, then noted ominously that next time the AI would write a better article. The story was such big news because of the threat of AI-authored content hangs over many creative industries right now. The Writers Guild of America is currently on strike, part, in part because the Labour Union wants a contract that guarantees AI won't be, giving, won't be given writing credits for screenplays. The Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists joined the strike because some movie studios have started rep replacing actors with digital replicas. In one widely reported case, a studio asked actors for digital scans of their bodies and voices to be used in perpetuity. An actor who took up that offer would be paid for one day of work. Well, the studio would make a profit off of it until the end of time. What I love about um, about this fucking like thing, because it's not the only place that's had like an article written by AI, like mm -hmm. shout out. But what I love about it is like there's all this, you know, everyone's hyping about AI constantly, like all year, and people are going, "Yeah, but can't you see that like you know once it's good enough, it'll just replace real writers and like fucking." It's like there's no consideration to once it's good enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like everyone in a position to fucking pull the trigger on this shit is absolutely believing the hype from like all of Elon Musk's fanboys on Twitter. They're it's using great. it right. So, so like, okay, thesis time. Thesis, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're using it to break the negotiating power of, of artists so they can give them worse contracts because of the threat of AI. That's what it's actually for. They know it's shit. They don't care. As long as it is just plausible enough that it could replace them, then it's to make them desperate to take a lower grade contract because, well, we would pay you more, but we could just get an AI to do it. And that's, that's what why, it's really that's about. That's why the Star Wars article list got published on io9, do you? 
Well, kind of a little bit, yeah. It's so that they can like cut back and pay their writers for io9 even less. Yes. Like it, 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 that's that's what it's there for. It's it's there to make a threat, and that's why their response was to say, "Oh, I mean, we'll do better next time." I mean, like on the on the topic of like AI articles, uh, there uh, there were a bunch of um, wow people on Reddit who were who were who suspected that um, articles were being scraped from this is great, yeah, from the um, like the wow subreddit. And uh, so one of them decided to test that theory by by posting on there something to the effect of that they were glad that Grombo or so something like that was being added <laughs> to the game and that they've been anticipating the addition of Grombo to World of Warcraft for years. <laughs> and the community played along and it became a, a highly rated thread. And then... Yeah, and then uh, an AI fucking chat... Well, chatbot, because basically what they are, um, scraped it and posted it as an article. I don't, I don't remember exactly where it was, but it was just like, World of Warcraft players are very excited for the addition of Grumbo. Uh. It's, it's, it's brilliant, but, it, you know, it's this is the, this is the rule kind of, kind of plays, you know? It's shit, and they know necessarily that it's not going to get too many clicks, but what matters is their ability to drive down labour prices. So... Um, yeah, I disagree. Actually... I think with like fucking websites and news, play, it's all just for. It's like, it's about fucking cramming as many like articles as you can onto the front page of Google. They don't give a shit about paying. Yeah. Like obviously, it's a benefit that they don't have to pay writers to churn this fucking piss out anymore. But like the important thing is that if someone is stuck in a video game or whatever, and they go on Google and search like how do horses work in V Ryzen, what they get back is like 20 fucking like AI-generated pages that explain what a horse is first. Oh, yeah, they can have remind, adverts all over them. That reminds me, Jamie, I need, to give you, like, I need to give you the good Baldur's Gate 3 wiki rather than the shit one. <laughs> <laughs> so, returning to the article, um, I talked to Eric uh, Hessier, a member of the WGA contract negotiation team, about why AI has become such a big threat now. As the screenwriter of Alien Contact movie Arrival and showrunner on Netflix fantasy series Shadow and Bone, um, Hesera is, I'm butchering his name, I know, is no stranger to speculative scenarios. But AI is no longer the stuff of science fiction. He said that when contract negotiations started earlier this year, AI was barely on anyone's mind at the WGA. But by April, most members had heard enough about AI apps like ChatGPT and MidJourney that they had started to worry. Then stories started pouring in from people in the industry. One came from an actor who shared audition sides scenes used to audition actors for projects where the script is under wraps. Typically, a writer would be paid to make audition sides as part of their job as a screenwriter, but these were entirely written by ChatGPT and the dialogue was hard to read. It was like the uncanny valley version of writing. Another member of the union came forward to say she had been approached by a producer who wanted to hire her for 48 hours to do what they called a voice pass on an AI-generated feature screenplay. They wanted to make it sound human or fix whatever fell off in the dialogue. Not only was it depressing to contemplate a gig making an AI script sound human, but the pay was unacceptable. A job that would normally take two months, writing a screenplay, was compressed into two days. Plus, who would get the writing credit? Writers in the union get paid based on screenwriting credits, and if an AI takes top billing, the writer loses. Another issue that Hesia thinks studios should be worried about is copyright. Generative AI models like ChatGPT learn by writing by excuse me learn to write by consuming and regurgitating text written by human beings. It could end in a feeding frenzy where work the studio owns is now being legally devoured by a rival studio. It's going to make a spaghetti bowl for lawyers to figure out uh, the ownership of material. And you know you, you get the idea essentially. Um, spaghetti this bowl. Is, it's an yeah, interesting like, turn of phrase. Hard, 
hard time pick. That's an American. A, a delicious yeah. spaghetti for the uh, American, American media enterprises. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to sit down to a big plate of meat and spaghetti balls. Mm. <laughs> so this is this is the this is the kind of issue. Like, it's it's about not so much like the march of technology. It's about technology being used as a preface to worsen the compensation of workers, essentially. And, you know, you might be sitting at home going, well, isn't AI the future? And aren't you just Luddites if you kind of reject it? Um, not really, especially because... Like, also, the, the Luddites were fucking right. Yes, yeah. like this, this is what we're getting to. So the original Lud Luddites, they weren't against technology. What they were against was the use of that technology to basically destroy them uh, and their way of life and give them no compensation whatsoever for their previous role in the economy. It wasn't about the tech itself. It was about the fact it was being used to essentially, sound familiar, depress wages, worsen conditions, and outright neglect and just like get rid of people and give no shits about them. This was not right as far as they were concerned. And their campaign was very much in response to the use of it and what it was being done, uh, what was being done to them uh, using that as a pretext. It's just progress, except progress which leaves behind like actual wake of destruction is not progress that's worth having. Um, especially because, you know, like here's the thing, um, an ethically assembled AI, assuming you could do that, which for, the, for reasons we've discussed, you probably can't because of the data sets, but let's say you could get legally acquired, like everyone's consenting, you know, data sets to train an AI on. That could be an interesting little tool for someone to use as part of their job. But that's not what's being proposed here. It's not Would ethically it be useful, though? Well, there's an interesting question there. There's an interesting like, question if you, there. If you want an AI to write Hollywood scripts, but you, for copyright reasons, you can't train it on any Hollywood scripts, is, well, see, is anything it shits out going to be useful to Hollywood? Well, that, that's the question. Maybe, that... maybe the entire field of AI is just fucking pointless, and everyone who thinks it's good and posts on fucking Twitter about how it and crypto are the future should be herded into a fucking bolt and sunk. So I'm going to, you know, little aside, a while back, I don't do this anymore because I learned more about the ethics of how it was assembled, but I used to, I used to use like uh, AI writing tools. We've been over, we did AI Starmer for a bit. I actually kind of regret doing AI Starmer because of the ethical implications of how the data set was made for that. Um, but like I used to play around with AI and it's fun as a toy. It's not necessarily a terrible idea, but as a toy, that's all it can be really. It can't produce anything of like serious artistic merit for the reasons we kind of outlined. And so, you know, to, to bring it back, the Luddites were kind of right and they got absolutely fucking steamrolled because state violence was brought in to stop them because they had a point. Like, you know, if they didn't have a point, people wouldn't have gotten bored with it, but they did. And that was a response. One hopes that they're not going to steamroll the unions this time over it. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of like the, the run up, why they're having a strike and everything. Let's ask a question now. How are this, how's the strike going? How's the negotiations actually going? Would you like to hear how they started off? Because you might you might expect the AMPT the AMPTP would have sat down and negotiated in good faith, but uh, no, I wouldn't. No, <laughs> nope, they didn't. Um, they started off by refusing to negotiate, and then finally they invited everyone around the table, and at I that just meeting, gave them a bollocken. Yet yeah, they just browbeat them about what was already on offer, was the best deal, etc. And as they were leaving, they released publicly a comprehensive proposal, banking on the implication that it would look like they'd spent the whole day talking about that proposal. They hadn't. They didn't even discuss the proposal with them. They just said, you should well, take us on the table. I would suggest that the union's counteroffer is...
Well, Ron Perlman's already suggested houses, so... Yeah, Yeah. so this is actually, we can report on this. Uh, Ron Perlman, a uh, famous actor from the Hellboy movies, among other things, um, he he actually straight up said that there's, you know, the, the, the studios were saying, oh, you can only strike for so long. Eventually you're not going to be able to afford your mortgages and people are going to lose houses. Ron Perlman went on video on the internet and shot back saying there's more than one way to lose a house. The people in, in charge of these companies have names and addresses. You know, there's, there's ways that houses burn down that aren't just natural. And he's like, he's just straight up calling for arson against them if they're going to talk this shit. That Beast. got taken down. I imagine that Ron Perlman's lawyer got on the phone to him right sharp and said, uh, Ron, Ron, you need to take that down. But uh, yeah, based. And that kind of gives you an idea of like the, the tension that's here because he's a big name, you know, uh, and he's that furious about it. So anyway, so they released this proposal and the unions were like, no, we didn't talk about that. And no, we're not accepting it. Um, since then, what they've done is they've nego- the, the uh, Motion Picture Association have basically, um, they have updated the offer a few times it's been pretty mealy mouth stuff they are actually ignoring SAG-AFTRA and refusing to talk to them and instead focusing on the WGA right and if you think about this logically it's, it's again it's divide and conquer but it's also because it's you know AI is much harder to you know make work to replace scripts than it is to serve as like helping with replacing people because the people replacing is still happening fundamentally because of humans and VFX um, so they're, they're focusing on the WGA first because they see them as more essential. And that's, um, the, that's the VFX mob that are barely fucking unionised and also not on strike, really, are you? Didn't well, hold, just, hold, uh, didn't it hold just unionised, though? Yeah, hold that thought. We're getting to it. So um, so how is how's that going? How's their efforts with like talking to the WGA going? Um, Deadline, the publication, has uh, the headline, WGA says AMPTP's latest contract either is neither nothing nor nearly enough. Typical writers. Um, and overall, uh, as I said, they're refusing to negotiate in earnest and trying to wait out the strikes, um, while also trying to foster discontent among the strikers. So here's a, here's an update from Deadline again. SAG-AFTRA's negotiating committee said Sunday it remains ready at a moment's notice to go back to the bargaining table to secure a righteous deal to end the actor's strike, which is now in its 46th day. Unfortunately, as we've seen from the recent news out of the WGA negotiations, it appears the AMPTP is still unwilling to make the concessions necessary to make a fair deal that would bring the strikes to a close. SAG-AFTRA leaders have said that they've been ready to resume negotiations since the strike began and are only waiting for Carol Lombardi, president of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, to call them back to the bargaining table. On August 15th, um, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, that's a real name, I can't believe it is, but Crabtree Ireland is a real name, um, who is SAG-AFTRA's National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator, told reporters that we remain very eager to get back to the table, as we've had every day since the actors' strike began on July 14th. We have been ready, willing and able to continue bargaining with them, and we very much want the AMPTP to come back to the table. He noted at the time, however, that there's been no contact by the AMPTP to SAG-AFTRA. They just stonewalled them. I feel uh, like Crabtree Island is probably in the South Pacific somewhere. Maybe. Who knows? So the WGA has said they've been making small progress, but it's nowhere near enough to end the strike. Didn't one of the studios um, like have all the fucking trees cut down outside its entrance so that the fucking uh, the picket line would get cooked? Yeah, we are going along tonight, but this is a cool little story. So in Hollywood, one of the studios, I think it was Universal, cut down some trees that the uh, um, all the strikers were like campaigning under and walking back and forth just to deny them shade. Turns out this was in violation of local ordinance and we shouldn't have done that. And they didn't be fined. 
Yeah, tree law. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they're being fined something like two hundred dollars. <laughs> like yeah. you know, is is bullshit. Tree, tree vigilante justice. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's the that's the level of petty it's at. They're just doing everything they can to undermine it. And speaking of undermining it, I quoted from Deadline a couple of times there. How's the press covering all of this? Because this matters. So, is it- uh, gen- well. Generally, the press has been covering it pretty poorly. I haven't found a single major news outlet that's clearly laid out the demands of either SAG-AFTRA or the WGA. Like, I've not been able to find one. They just haven't really... They've conspicuously neglected to mention their actual demands. Well, because they don't want to give the fucking newsroom ideas, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I put it to you that this is intentional. Corporate media is generally anti-union. Also remember... Going to replace the- Hugh Edwards with some kind of digital hum- homunculus. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. you got to remember, the major news broadcasters like NBC are members of the AMPTP, right? In fact, Deadline, who I've been quoted from, you'll be surprised to find out that one of their holding companies is, you know, part of the AMPTP. So even as they're reporting on it... Is this, like, you is know, this, where, um, is this where they get the crisis actors from? <laughs> well, who, who can say? But... Um, what what was interesting is that I decided to do a read into like so how how is this being portrayed then okay they're not covering the actual demands so how are they doing it I came across about fifty different articles that played up how television was shit during the two thousand seven WGA uh, strike and how it's going to repeat like I found out yeah. all over the place um, I also found you know a lot of articles talking about you know how things are so good in Hollywood these days etc cetera, etc cetera. it's all very yeah. it's all very shit like that. But it's interesting that they still have to use kind of kid gloves on SAG-AFTRA because, you know, it's fronted by people like Brian Cranston and Aubrey Plaza and people who, like, your average person kind of likes and respects and has got time for, you know? Um, so it's, they can't immediately demonize them. But how they yeah. are covering it all is interesting. Here's the second and final article I'm going to read you on this topic. Um, this is from Counterpunch, who do some really good reporting. Um, and it's about how entertainment trade magazines spin the WGA SAG-AFTRA strikes. So, just two days after Hollywood writers' strike began on May 2nd, 2023, Deadline Hollywood tweeted, Saturday Night Live fans want to know what you are missing? Kieran Culkin and Jennifer Coolridge were set to host the final two episodes of a season before the writers' strike forced an end to season 48 of a venerable NBC show. And people other- say strikes are bad. Exactly. How can you possibly assume a strike is bad if it's fucking stopped SNL from airing? (laughs) But here's the thing. In other words, how is the strike affecting consumers? Why are the underpaid, exploited writers deliberately standing in the way of your favourite shows? Who gives Um, a fuck? It's like that. It's like the thing you mentioned there, though, about there's all these articles about how bad television was during the last like writer strike. And I want to point out again that a lot of television was just like that. Yeah. (laughs) So the article continues, the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents major Hollywood studios such as Netflix, Amazon, Disney, blah, 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 um, had reached an impasse after six weeks of negotiations, resulting in a WGA voting unanimously to author- authorise a strike. Uh, streaming services have changed how writers are paid, including paltry residuals and weekly wages, and have created a gig economy wherein writers have no choice but to jump from job to job to stay afloat. Network TV, where seasons run for at least 20 episodes, allow steady full-time work for months. Streaming shows typically mean less work, less pay, and shrinking writers' rooms. In July, the American Actors Union SAG-AFTRA joined the writers on the picket lines after failed negotiations with the AMPTP, which similarly included disputes over pay, regulation of AI, and better healthcare. 
Trade publications zeroed in on workers immediately, minimising their demands and rarely focusing on the major studios in action. After Snoop Dogg cancelled two Hollywood Bowl shows in solidarity with WGA and SAG-AFTRA, Rolling Stone tweeted that the strikes were completely unrelated to what he does as a musician. Rolling Stone later deleted the post. A May Variety headline villainised a writer for a tongue-in-cheek picket sign referencing Jenna Ortega's comments about having changed lines on her show Wednesday. Deadline published an article in July quoting an executive who said, The endgame is allowing things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. See our previous comment about Ron Perlman. Mm -hmm. A pattern in trade publications' coverage of strikes soon emerged. Writers against viewers, writers against actors, and finally, writers against each other where forging ahead might mean losing everything. The Writers Guild of America immediately called out the union-busting deadline article as studio propaganda. Comedian, actor, and writer Jenny Yang told Yahoo News, as a former labor organizer, this article reeks of a desperate attempt by these corporate insiders to break our morale and scare us. Entertainment magazines, such as Deadline Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and Rolling Stone, have a clear stake in the strike. All are owned by Penske Media, which rakes in millions yearly in award show advertising. Although initially slated for September 2023, the Primetime Emmy Awards have already been postponed until January 2024, and Emmy consultants believe campaign advertising may only add fuel to the fire. I think a noisy campaign could do more harm than good, one consultant told the Los Angeles Times back in May. I don't think it's a good look to be seen spending millions of dollars on an Emmy campaign right now. Studios feeling to meet the... Studios failing to meet the union's demands results in far less content for publications like Deadline and Variety. Writers and actors are prohibited from engaging in any publicity services, including providing personal interviews and attending for your consideration events, panels, or premieres. I love all the fucking um, scab YouTubers they've been getting in to like fill all the gaps in the schedules that they've got for everything now, like fucking the Mr. Beast and like that uh, TikTok oh. woman. So I, I don't know about TikTok women, but actually, Mr. Beast was working under a like he was working under contract that was approved. Uh, he wasn't strike. He wasn't scabbing, as it turns out. Um, fucking they hate had that rules. Prick. I know, yeah, right? Same. I hate him. Um, but like they, fuck. they, they actually, they actually made a, a post about this, explaining that no, Mr. Beast was fulfilling the terms of a contract that was previously negotiated and that the union signed off on. Um, so he's absolutely fine. Leave him alone, basically. Which sucks. I vehemently but, you know, disagree. Yeah, I will not actually. <laughs> like, I, I think the, the key point is he's a cunt for many reasons, but he's not a scab. So Yet. fair. Yeah, I mean, mm, we'll see. Huge, we know um, huge fucking scab energy. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> um, so, for entertainment media, a resolution is crucial, but not for the same reason as it is for the unions. Um, and yeah, so to, to conclude, it says writers and actors expect to earn a living wage, especially for projects that make a killing for multi-billion dollar studios. Disney CEO Bob Iger recently told CNBC that the writers and actors' expectations are just not realistic and that he finds the strikes disturbing. But that's, that's coming from some that's coming from someone who makes 535 times a Disney employee's median pay. It doesn't get more disturbing than that. So, uh, so yeah, that's like how the like media is essentially kind of covering it. Um, you know, th the industry is like doing all they can to mitigate it. The mainstream media is reporting on it just by saying, oh, it's just like 2007 and otherwise just not mentioning it. And would it surprise you to know that AMPTP has hired the Levinson Group 
a strategic communications and issues management firm with a global reach, is their strapline, to help them manage their public image the during this. Issues management firm. <laughs> yes, issues management firm. They're, like their their media consultants and strike breakers is my Just call it. yourself a fixer. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, knock off Pinkertons is my kind of read, yeah. but hey, who knows? So that's, that's where things are at. Um, there has been fallout from the strikes, though, and there's been quite a lot. So there's a couple of aspects we haven't covered. One is that studios feel comfortable doing all this because they're able to get content from abroad for dirt cheap. Unfortunately, labor efforts in America have inspired unions around the world to stand up, especially as it turns out in South Korea. Uh, Netflix in particular is fucking terrified because they've been getting content from Korea for dirt cheap because the unions there have been walked over for a while. Think Squid Game and things like that. Um, mm. You know, South Korean actors and Netflix originals want better pay. Their company refuses to meet with their union. Their union is now getting militant. The South Korean actors union is now standing up because they're looking at sag after and going, well, if they can do it. Um, well, this, and... this is largely down to Squid Game, isn't it? Because like they, they really fucking noticed when that one got so big and they got paid almost fuck all off the back of it. Yes, it is. But what's really very explicitly citing the work of SAG-AFTRA is inspiring them. Um, you know, uh, as news of SAG-AFTRA strike broke in mid-July, uh, Song Chang-Gon, a 51-year-old actor and current president of Korean Broadcasting Actors Union, was still waiting to hear back from Netflix, a company that was proving to be difficult to get hold of. Literally, they keep trying to find the fuckers and they are dodging them because they don't want to get into the same sort of dispute. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's they've been inspired by SAG-AFTRA and by seeing how little they're getting for the likes of Squid Game, etc. So that's good. That's some improvement. Um, another bit which has been excellent, um, you know, the studios, like, one of the reasons they feel so comfortable with all of this is because they can use VFX work a lot of the time to fill roles that previously they'd have to pay a lot of money for. Like, would it surprise you to know that all the old physical prop production teams were all unionized, whereas the CGI teams weren't? Um, and similarly, you know, they don't need to pay residuals to animators and they can treat their animators like dirt. Good news then that earlier in this month, Marvel VFX artists took the first step towards unionization and applied um, to the National Labor Relations Board for union recognition with the backing of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. Uh, so yeah, Marvel VFX artists saying, yeah, we want a union. And just recently, like a couple of days ago, visual effects crews at Walt Disney Pictures followed them and also fired with the National Labor Relations Board to unionize with the backing of uh, the VFX union. So yeah, this is what's especially good about this is, I, I hate to give him credit, President Biden's actually been pretty good on unionization issues. Nah, we, we don't need to do that. We, we can skip this bit. Well, no, there's a little bit that's worth mentioning. So he beefed up the, the National Labor Relations Board, and it's actually instituted new rules that say if a company in any way fucks with a unionization effort, that union is automatically recognized. Previously, they got to try whatever shit they wanted, and if it didn't work, it didn't work, but they got no repercussion. Now, if they're found to unduly try and influence any like, union recognition process, that union is automatically considered recognized. So uh, that's pretty good, and it makes it much more likely that the VFX shops that, are going to be... Like, nationwide, is it? Because I thought yeah, that was one state. Nope. Uh, my understanding is the National Rela uh, Labor Relations Board are applying it across the US, much to the chagrin of like a lot of conservative fuckwats. Um, finally, it's not all good. There have been some downsizing, in particular the Creative Arts Agency, which is a pretty big deal over in uh, LA. Uh, they have been downsizing as a consequence of the strikes. But yeah, so it's ongoing, it's complicated, but ultimately it comes down to whose side are you on? Are you with the workers? Or are you with like Bob Iger and the other very highly paid people 
who you know wouldn't piss on you to put you know, out a fire. That's it. Bob Do Iger, the a... only more hated Bob than Bobby Kotick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do we have any? Do we have any closing thoughts here? Like you know, that's that's pretty as good a comprehensive introduction as I can give to the issue. No. No. Um, up the workers and yeah, uh, fuck it. I'll take two thousand and seven again if it means these cunts get their fucking yeah. fair pay in that. Yeah. Yep. So and also and also, also slay like, the beast, which is the AI. So uh, so yeah, that's I guess that's all we can say on WGA and SAG-AFTRA and their strikes for now. We'll keep you updated if anything interesting happens. Uh, in the meantime, I think Jamie's got some comment or commentary for us. I didn't bother this week, actually. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> yeah, I have. Um, right, here's the first one. You can't pick up human energy in the same way. Like, the energy field is just almost not there. It's like people are holograms. It's like a city of ghosts now. You're there, you see them, but you can't feel them. People who are vaccinated have no scent anymore. You can't smell them. <laughs> I'm not saying like they don't smell bad or they don't smell. Like, I'm not talking about deodorant. I'm saying they don't smell like there's a human being in the room and they don't feel like there's a human being in the room. Comment or commentary? <laughs> uh, comment, surely. Surely. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Alistair, what do you think? Commentariat. I kind of want to take the stab at that as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fuck it. I'm hoping this comment. Please let it be comment. Uh, it was commentariat. That was. <laughs> <laughs> that was. Wait, 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 till, wait till you unpick this, though. That was a Guardian interview with Naomi Klein on being mistaken for Naomi Wolf. So that is something Naomi Wolf said on like a news podcast in America. <laughs> right, yeah. right. That's just. That's a fucking trick. Mm. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was technically both. Yeah, I'd like, okay, sure. All right. <laughs> All right, second one. Have you driven in London or anywhere else recently? If oh, so, you'll yes. have noticed that traffic lights simply don't work anymore because <laughs> since the advent of the smartphone, drivers are so desperate to use the queuing time to check their phones that each light only releases about half as many cars as it was programmed to. <laughs> as one in four of those lined up checks to see what's happened on TikTok since the last time they checked, about three minutes ago, and thus misses the change, gets honked at by the furious guy behind them, panics, stalls, and nobody else gets out. Shamed, they exit the next light properly, promptly, but within four cars of them, there'll be someone else desperate to see if his crap Twitter joke's been liked in the last 200 seconds who will himself miss it, panic and stall, and the cycle goes on, infuriating. And it's all because people are afraid to check their phones while driving, which they know for sure is criminal. So here's what we do. First, we make it legal to check your phone while driving. <laughs> Comment or commentary at... Pandora's this was box. you in another Discord. What fucking Pandora's <laughs> box have we opened by allowing Jamie to do multiple fucking comments or commentary at? Oh, it's glorious is what it is. Uh, I'm going to go comment again. This is, this is, is either comment or it's fucking this is, Jeremy This Clarkson. is deranged enough to be commentary at. Yeah, 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 I'm going with commentary at as well. That was Giles Corrin in the Times. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, how can he complain about traffic though? He doesn't have a car. <laughs> right I've never watched Meghan Markle in a film or series nor have any desire oh. to 
I, with friends, celebrated Harry and her getting married. So many of us in the UK were pleased to see him happy. Not for long, though. Her disrespect to our Queen when she described how she curtsied was appalling. An example of her dreadful acting skills and the last straw. Harry should have put her in her place right then. His betrayal to the family is equally unforgivable. They deserve each other. I hope King Charles ensures that not a penny from the UK subsidises them, and I think it's only a matter of time before Netflix pulls the plug on them. Comment or commentary at... Do you know the thing that annoys me about that whole cur- curtsy thing is I actually unfortunately learned about this. She was fucking joking about herself and how she didn't know how to do a curtsy. That's what like she was saying. I, I didn't have a clue. I was like trying to curtsy and I did something like this. And she's making fun of herself. She wasn't making fun of a queen. God damn okay, it. Okay, but okay, but have you considered that like a main crime was not being white while she did it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she, she made a joke while black, and that's not allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a criminal offence. Uh, comment. I'm free for free. I'm gonna go comment on this one. Yeah, comment. Comment feels right in a wrong way. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a comment on a GB News video about something unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> Very on brand. Right, that's it. Because I had a fourth one, but if Rob's not here to get mad about wine, then I'm saving it for later. <laughs> Come back okay. soon, Rob. Yeah, okay. Cool. Uh, okay, right, so closing up uh, and all stuff is coming, I promise. I just haven't fucking edited it yet. I promise I will fucking release those episodes soon. Uh, you can, however, get the bonus episode, which will be out by the time this episode is out, uh, on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash practice. Yeah, or your money back. No, no, not legally binding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jamie instantly curses a de- uh, release to be delayed. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, patreon.com forward slash PraxisCast if you're not already a member, that also gets you access to the Discord. Uh, you, you should you should do that. You should join the Discord. Just post in the Discord. Discord is good. And you can see us streaming. That is twitch.tv forward slash PraxisCast Wednesdays and Thursdays from about half seven, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, thereabouts in the evening. Yeah. And praxiscast.tml.com for your merch requirements. Come yeah, join us on the Discord. I like being shouted at by you about why my opinions are wrong. It's great. Yeah, and they are wrong, and there's a lot of them, so... Yeah, come and bully James about Skyrim sex mods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there, won't, there wasn't a stream yesterday that. because I was the birthday boy. <laughs> I love how you include that, Jamie, because out of context, that's going to sound fantastic. Great. Which which bit? The bit about me being a birthday boy or the bit about you like having fucking grot mods for Skyrim? I just, I fucking... I, Jesus wept, I swear to God. <laughs> If you would like to understand the context of that joke and why it's not as it sounds like, please do join the Discord. No, it is as bad as it sounds. Yeah, oh my <laughs> fucking god. Bye. A thousand bye. yards bye. at a time. Bye. Yeah, reluctantly, bye. <laughs>